Hello all and welcome to Kino Kingdom 63 and a third and it's definitely not named that because I skipped an episode when la- last episode should have been 62 and I accidentally uploaded it as 63 and this is a Naked Gun reference. That is not the chain of events that's happened so I don't know why anyone would think that. I it's don't, quite a coincidence though isn't it? <laughs> now that I think about it and say it out loud it is a coincidence. Um, I just wanted to kick off this 63 and a third episode by saying that um, I think it was yesterday I found out that Kevin Conroy the voice of Batman the, the animated Batman passed away and I was absolutely gutted to hear it um yeah I mean he because I kind of follow him on Twitter and I've been such a fan of his for so long that and he just seems like a he seemed like a really good man like a good Mm. human being who who really really had a lot of respect for what he was doing and loved his fans and I had no idea that he was ill and it was devastating to find out yesterday that that he passed away yeah and he was so uh, like he was the voice of Batman as far as I'm concerned. I mean, like yeah. other people obviously better physically embody the role better as Bruce Wayne and everything. But in terms of the voice, like, cause he, he did the animated series and he did a lot of the games as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's just synonymous really with Batman's voice. So yeah, we need to give him a proper send off. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think over the next few weeks, we'll be doing a special episode with uh, Laszlo helping us out just to talk but through, a lot about Kevin Conrad, but going through the Batman media chronology, just talking about different aspects of it. But, yeah, it's um, the same with you. It's his his Batman to me was with Mark Hamill with the Joker, like it's the yeah. same sort of thing. It was synonymous with the with the video games and the, and the animated series and, and movies. And, yeah, I'm clearly going to have to go back and watch Mask of the Phantasm again with my eyes because that is good. I don't know if you're aware of that, Rupert. It's have good. To dig the discs out because for some reason Batman animated stuff is weirdly hard to find on streaming. I, I do have Mask of the Phantasm. Actually, I've got a few of them because I think you bought them for me actually about eight years ago for my birthday. Okay. So I'll be dig- digging those babies out. Yeah, mm. definitely. So, yeah, we, so we love and miss you, Kevin, and we'll be chatting about you in, in more depth in a few weeks. Um, Just to. to bit of a weird thing happened as well um changing the, the sort of shifting gears a little bit i a couple of days ago i was just out walking and i had a phone call from create creative artists more specifically darren aronofsky's agent his name is his name is richard guts and he was he was an intensely american man and he it was a i I'm not going to like you, but I didn't expect the phone call. I didn't expect that. Yeah, and, he, and, and, he, and he said to me, oh, you know, um, I was this brick from Kino Kingdom. And I said, yeah, yeah hello. Um, and he said, uh, Darren's a huge fan of Kino Kingdom. And I said, Who, who's Darren? He said, Darren Aronofsky. And I was like, right. And he said, well, I say he's a fan. He loves the Welsh plug, but he thinks the other one seems like a bit of a prick. And I said, right, well, I said, well, I was lucky you rang me really to say that. And he, and then he said, are you interested in interviewing Darren Aronofsky? And I said, yeah. And as I was thinking, oh, do you know what? I'm probably going to get Rupert to do this because I'm a bit out of my depth with interviews, especially. It doesn't help that I've not seen a single film of his. And I said, yeah, yeah. And as I was about to say, oh, well, after he said, oh, wicked, I'll put him through. And I said, pardon? And then he was on the line and he was chatting away. And he was like, oh, yeah, big, big fan of the show. Um, you know, and, and then there was like this silence. And I said, Darren, I've never seen any of your films, mate. I don't like I'm sure you're a lovely guy and have you had good things about the wrestler and stuff, but I've not seen a single one of your films. And he said, 
and it was like silence. It was quite awkward. And and he said, what, you haven't even seen Pi? And I said, oh, that was one of the early ones. He said it was the first one, yeah. Or like Requiem for a Dream. And I said, no, I, I haven't seen any of them. And I, I know that Requiem for a Dream is one that Rupert likes and says is, you know, it's quite full on. And he was like, what about what about the wrestler? Are you into wrestling? And I said, I am. I've actually watched a lot of wrestling documentaries. I'm a big fan of wrestling. And he said, so you've seen the wrestler? And I said, Darren, I have not seen any of your films. So you can list as many as you want. And then it was a bit awkward. And then he said, so you haven't seen Mother? And I said, no, that because that's one of your films. And I haven't seen any of your films. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, basically, I was calling to give you an exclusive because I've written a sequel called Father. And I thought, oh, cool. Like, you think it'd be Mother 2 or Mother 2, you know, colon Father, but it's just called Father. And he said, and he was explaining it. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to just, um, he said, it's not so much a film. If you just press record on your phone, it's, it's a 90 minute piece of free form poetry. Um, and I said, okay, that is, that isn't a film. You're right, Darren. Um, so I'm just going to play, play this, a snip of what he, what he, what he did on the phone. I just recorded this. So this is the official, this is a world exclusive. This is the, a snippet of the sequel father to his 2017 film, Mother. Father's breath on the mantelpiece, father's eyes when he saw the thief, father dancing in the dark, father's fingers in the pack, father looking strangely at me, father telling the wings of bees, father looking down the gun, father's disappointment with his son, father wished I was a girl, father on the tilt and whirl, father staring in the rain, father remembering his pain, father looking down the stairs, father wishing he wasn't there, father looking out the door, father's memories are no more, father standing outside my door, father wishing there was more, father staring in the sink, father drinkity drink, 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 father opening his drawer, father, father, you're no more, father opening his eyes to see the world which he doth despise, father. And that goes on for 90 minutes. And and, 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 and yeah, at the end of it, he just hung up, and I thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't know what to make of it, so I just played it. I don't, I mean, I haven't seen Mother, so I don't know how that follows on contextually to the film, or if it's. Mm-hmm. I don't remember there being a, a drunk, homeless Yorkshireman in the original Mother, but yeah, that I mean, that would definitely be a departure, mm. as usual style. Yeah, it, I, like I said, it was bizarre, and I, I think in future on, on like the um, the Menu Talk website, and I'm just gonna, which you know, if you want to contact us, it's um, the Menu Talk at Outlook.com. I'm gonna put your phone number on there because I don't want that kind of phone call again, because it was it, it was uncomfortable, and then it was just weird, and, and they are two emotions that I don't really and enjoy. lengthy as well from sounds. Yeah, my all my battery was flashing at me at the end, honestly. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was odd, but thank you, Darren Aronofsky, for that. I hope, uh, hope things are going well for you. Um, and that brings us to the Arkinsdar. 
which was Florence Pugh to Miguel Ferrer. And um, have, have you got your answer there? I do have my answer here. Am I kicking off? Yeah, yeah, please. I'm assuming it's a one-stepper, so it should be quick for you to... <laughs> Uh, Miguel Ferrer was in Traffic with Don Cheadle, who was in Endgame, not that one, with Scar- <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, who was in Black Widow, not that one, or that one, with Florence Pugh. So that was the three-stepper. <laughs> three-steppers are popular this this episode because we've got, we had Laszlo saying, howdy, I wanted to go via Hot Shots Part 2, <laughs> but couldn't top three steps. So instead we have Miguel Ferrer was in Robocop with Peter Weller who was in Star Trek Into Darkness with Chris Pine, who was in Don't Worry Darling with Florence Pugh, and then he, he gave a little kiss on the message as well, which is always always welcome. We love Laszlo. Uh, Max said, Miguel Ferrer is in Traffic with Don Cheadle, who's in many Avengers films with Scarlett Johansson, who's in Black Widow with Florence Pugh. P.S. Thanks to Rupert for reminding me that Ferrer is in Traffic. <laughs> it's often a hint in the, in the episode somewhere we'll mention something else. But the winner this month by, I can't tell, looking at my notes, if it's 40 miles or a single step. Oh, that's probably a Brian Adams song, isn't it? Uh, um, his new album, by the way, is called uh, So Happy It Hurts. And it's him. And it's like a silhouette of him with an acoustic guitar on the top of like an old Buick or something doing like a high kick. And when I saw that poster, I thought, you're 60. You're a you 60 year old man. Well, that's the best you can come up with. That's the best your PR team can come up with. <clears throat> Shall I stand on a car and do a kick? Oh, we kind of expected more from that after 40 years in the industry, Mr. Adams. Um, so the winner this week is Utah Smith, who said that Florence Pugh is in Black Widow with Robert Downey Jr., who is in Iron Man 3 with Miguel Ferrer. Whoa. Did not know he's in Iron Man 3. No, I don't. Well, I say that. I, I admittedly haven't tested this theory, so I don't know if you want to, if you're in doubt. Maybe I'll quickly have a quick, a quick check, but I, I would never doubt. <clears throat> any of Utah. our yeah Utah, especially but any of our <laughs> uh, you, you got me thinking it now because I was like they're like they're phoning into going live on a Saturday like, morning um yeah portrayed vice president Rodriguez nine man three fair play with Utah he does pull out these um he's really good with the cameos I've noticed yeah. it's always like what was the one before it was it was like um so like, Eliza... he's, there's been ones before where it's like an uncredited voice <laughs> bloody acting role or something and it's like really yeah like an accredited actress doing like a re-recording a single line of dialogue in the german dub and you're like hang on um yeah the, um, so... the lady in crawl which i know we're going to talk about today uh the main actress in that was completely dubbed over by someone else as was robert coltrane's voice as i found out oh really because he spoke and I thought, hmm, I've heard Robbie Coltrane. It does not sound like that. Yeah. And then, Although that, I think, well, I suppose there's only a few lines in it, yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, uh, so the Arkansas winner for this month is um, is the audience. And I think that brings it to 46-1 to them against you. So that's cool. Um, you really need a back right? Like, you, you host a podcast on movies and yet you haven't. I don't think you've ever won. Have you ever won? I feel like... I don't think I've. I don't think I've. I, might have to, I feel like I might have to get another co-host. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if this is, I can't put this on my CV, can I? The thing oh, is, I won one once. Yeah, because like, like if you think 46 of forty-six other times, when someone invents a game, you think they would be good at it. Like if, 
like with basketball, if they said, oh, we invented this game called basketball and they explained it and they were like, can you show us? They're like, I oh, know we're totally shit at it. But you think if I said I've invented a game that's like a, a mixture between like a combination of fencing, swimming and golf, uh, you think that I would be good at it. It, it. In fact, you'd argue that have you invented this awkward game because it's something you're good at and no one else is. <laughs> but we invented so you, the game. We invented the game say, to bring love into the world and that's what we bought. Yeah, it will feel yeah, love love and infuriation I think because the amount of times I get messaged from people saying ah oh, like who is this person? <laughs> love and bafflement. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant I, early 19th century novel. Yeah, yeah. Also the names of my pet goats as well. <laughs> uh so yeah, so that that's the that's the Arkansas I wanted to come up with another one this this episode. Um I just wanted to do a quick catch up before we get into the into the show proper, because I watched over the Halloween period. I'm assuming you've watched more than one horror film, but I've only watched one horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is. Oh, by the way, the list I'll go into this later on. The list of films I have to talk about are absolutely unbelievable. Like the quality is unbelievable in what I've what I've sat through. I th- I've almost given myself whiplash from just shaking my head at films in four by three this this in two forty p this last month. Um, so yeah, uh, I watched Terrifier, uh, which is your film of the week for the Halloween episode. Mm. And thank you by the way. I did have some nice messages about the um the Halloween story, so that was nice. Thank you for that. Those who uh, yeah. said nice things. Um. Which is weird because I just went on like an AI audio show sort of creator and just type just typed in bollocks and then it just came up with that and I said oh that'll do yeah I just typed in Pontiac and total bollocks and that's what came out um, yeah I watched Terrifier and when you said it was your film of the weekend it was really good you were right you were very much correct on that okay. I, I I was I. Obviously, you've covered it, so I can skim over the whole premise with a, basically a scary clown. But I was when I first came on, I was sort of thrown off because I've watched a lot of low-budget films, yeah. and, and and it kind of had that stark lighting that low-budget films have, and I thought this looks cheap. But I kind of feel like it was almost because it looks cheap and bright little at the start when they're in like the diner and stuff. Mm-hmm. I almost think that was a stylistic choice because it really does trick you into thinking, Oh, it's just another low budget horror. Yes. And and then it really does like the, the quality of, of the makeup and the storytelling, the acting, not so much in some aspects. Yeah. Um, but the, but the art, art, the clown himself. I mean, that diner scene is just so disturbing. Yeah. It's oh, the this, grin on his face and stuff. Oh. I, I, I said, she's funny. You should say that. Cause I said, to Faye just before that we started recording a few minutes before I said you know terrifier because she gave it she'd said I'd give it eight and a half out of ten um and I said what scenes stick in your mind bearing in mind a lot of stuff happens in that movie and she said the way he smiles in the diner it's when when she says he looks weird and then it cuts to his face and he's like tilting his head back and to the left and and his makeup in the film never shifts it's this kind of rubbery like really crisp makeup but it's the bloody teeth that weird dark blood around his teeth like his gums are rotting in his mouth um and he's doing this like and he's completely still with this like wide-eyed like rictus grin and i said yeah that, that's really unsettling actually like that would be a great poster for a horror fan um he's a good creation i think i mean it's quite hard to come up with new good kind of slasher creations but i think what sets him apart as i might have mentioned last week was is just the delight with which he that he gets from terrifying people and like 
torturing them psychologically before frankly <laughs> he gives them a good a good good once over once he does get his hands on them yeah. doesn't he yeah let's just say that he doesn't take them down with a small toffee hammer does he 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 really works his magic his black magic um i, I want to correct you as well i'm not correct you but just points something out i don't feel like i'm picking holes and things but you you said he was a completely silent antagonist mm. and um creepily the only time um in that film he makes any kind of noise is a really sort of subtle childlike sob when he's rocking back and forth holding a doll in the arms of a woman he kind of makes this sort of it's like a really pathetic sob like there's going to be a moment a moment of human empathy in the entire film that is cast aside but no apart from that i just like the physical effects were really dirty really as as in every time he's on the screen and it's not like a it's not like he's sort of appearing and lurking in the darkness it's he it's not like an 80s the monster rocks up at the end for the money shot he is a constant looming presence and a constant threat and i really liked how there were little choices in the film that kind of that the the way it was the expertise and the way it was directed led you towards it would like there's a moment where they're under and as you said, it's all in this abandoned apartment complex and they're underground and they're trying to she's trying to get away from him and they get into a bit of a, a fracas and it, the camera sort of keeps on cutting to this uh, tunnel. Yeah. And you, you think she's going to go under there and there's going to be like a scene where she brought through loads of rats or whatever. And it, it kind of leads towards that. And then it goes a totally different direction. And it's not mind blowing, but it's very clever in that the film constantly sets up something yeah. sort of subtly, almost subliminally suggests the film, the, the direction it's going to go in. And then it'll go in a different direction. And that yeah. that in itself kept me interested in every single uh, event every single encounter yeah. um yeah and i think it, it is probably one of the in terms of like you say how often do you get a good modern day slasher mm. and 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 it felt like this could have been made in the 80s it could be in the 90s and it would always whichever decade it was made it would stand out to the, the the incredible antagonist and the way that the direction in it and i mean i'm intrigued about the second film because it's two and a half hours long that's that is interesting i mean um Yes, I clearly it can't be the same thing again. It can't be two and a half hours of what we saw in the first one. So it could be a good thing or it could be horribly overblown and just turgid. But I don't know. My pro- my only real issue with the film was, like I said last week, was the lack of the kind of folklore uh, element to it because of all the John Carpenter stuff. He l- used to love that stuff. So fleshing out a bit of backstory i don't mean like have a like a flashback to child or any shit like that but just like uh fleshing out the folklore part did you find that there was a scene in the film terrify where there's a woman who kind of sits with him and starts like talking to him about his feelings and stuff and like well, that's, really that's the to scene where he makes his first noise that's where he makes his only noise in the whole film i found that scene so funny because of course by that point, you've seen the things he does to people and his complete lack of mercy. And <laughs> this lady's like trying to get through to him. And it's almost like it leaves it hanging on a question like or something like, oh, do, like, do you want to tell me how you're feeling? And he just stares at her and you think she is dead. She is oh, going but, to well, die. I, if memory serves, that's the bit where she's like holding him and rock, shh, shh, and she's like tapping his back and he's doing this kind of pathetic sob. And it's one of those moments, like in The Shining, you know, there's that scene in The Shining you've mentioned on the podcast before where he's staring straight ahead yeah. and his eye, and his eyes flick up and then it cuts. Mm. 
it does a similar thing in the terrifier where he's sobbing and she's sh- sh- like thinking she's got through to him because she's disturbed herself yeah. and then and he's like making this sort of <laughs> like she's getting through to him and just before it cuts you're almost not sure if it happens he like looks up at her as if he's playing her yeah. And then, of course, it cuts and you don't know what happens. Well, eventually you find out. And uh, quite frankly, he hasn't paid for it to go on a self-catering holiday in Corfu for a week and a half. I'll tell you that. Um, so, yeah, I, I really liked it. Faye really liked it. And when it finished, it was one of those films that we would we still talk about. It'll pop up in conversation. And I'll let you know how the second one goes. Oh, are you? Oh, are you haven't seen it yet. So I haven't seen it yet. No. Okay. Well, have you? Have you not seen it? Because when I watched it, it was this Terrifier was ninety nine p on Amazon Prime, but I I'm pretty sure that when I flicked over to Terrifier two, it said it was seven thousand euros. <laughs> well, it is. It literally came out like two weeks ago or something. So yeah, um, but I will be watching it with your eyes or your feet. I don't know. A bit of column A, bit of column B. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one eye and one foot. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something you'd say if you sat next to a Russian spy on a bench. Um, I see you reading the paper <laughs> with a one eye and one foot, and he would turn around to you and say, "Yes, and I've pulled a muscle." So <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, where do we go from here? Um, I think we should go into. I've talked for a long time, as I always do, and I, I've done my catch up. I've got a few films that my films are astonishing, but honestly, mm. I've gone I've gone back to my roots with the films I've watched this, okay. this year. So I'll let you talk for a little bit. <clears throat> okay, uh, I'll talk about the Savalas. Oh, hang, oh, hang on now. I'm gonna I'm gonna edit this. We don't talk about that. That's coming out. That's edited out. No, go on. Actually, Did I need you... to talk Savalas briefly as well. So yeah, go on. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about Dharma. That's mm. not its full title because it's actually Dharma. I think it's called Dharma, and then hyphen Monster colon the Jeffrey Dharma story. Terrible title then. They they kind of covered that in the first word really, didn't they? I mean, not many people are called Dharma, are they? Yeah, I think you probably know who it's about. So this is a long, slow, ten-part TV Netflix series about the. Crimes and the demise of one Jeffrey Dahmer, who was killing, fucking, and eating young men, not necessarily in that order, during the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's very beautifully made and sensitively paced, I would say. It is created by the ubiquitous Ryan Murphy, who is responsible for American Horror Story. And I think he did Ratchet, the uh, Nurse Ratchet thing. Um, anyway, so, yeah. Tempest series and the focus on the victims is quite welcoming. Uh, and there's this one episode in particular, episode six. Uh, have you seen this TV series? Uh, yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you you brought it up actually because obviously it's the Savalas, so I don't I don't talk about it. But um, I have I'm very familiar with the work of Jeffrey Dahmer, and I, I have quite strong thoughts on the show and Evan Peters in particular. So. So episode six, you remember this one. This one was the one a shot mostly in silence. Um, and it really stood out for me. And it's this, it's basically telling the story of one of his victims who's a very sweet, young, blind man. And I really liked that episode. I thought that was really, really, really well done. Um, and I think in an overarching way, the reminder that the victims were mostly black, gay and poor and very young, actually, as well. Uh, it does feel like a crucial 
refocusing because it's likely that those are the very reasons that this pretty incompetent and careless killer wasn't brought to justice sooner i mean he wasn't exactly covering his tracks um he just wasn't killing the right people for police to notice take it seriously so yeah evan peters uh i thought he was quite astonishing in the title role i mean i don't know what jeffrey dunn was like as a person but the mannerisms and the awkwardness and this sudden ferocity and this sort of deep sadness it was all really well portrayed and regardless of whether it was a good impersonation of him it didn't look like acting to me it just felt like we were observing so which is a sign of a great performance and and i think what this series does really well is it shows it does a good job of showing how many opportunities jeffrey dharma had to find actual love and intimacy and not just murder and eat people and he took none of them so it's like there are no excuses really i mean he did have clear possibly did have clear opportunities to actually take a peaceful route um i'd say there's something that didn't work for me in the show though was its coyness um in terms of actually showing the things he did it does a really good job of building tension and dread but when it comes to the actual killings and what happens afterwards it's almost it's almost like too tasteful I mean, we hear reference to the terrible things he did through sound and exposition, but but it's notable that the most savage scene of violence is Jeffrey Dahmer's death itself. Spoiler alert, sorry. But and I think that's problematic because it forces me, the viewer, into the position of feeling sympathy for him. And I don't think that was the intention, or at least I hope not. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to see Jeffrey Dahmer drilling someone's skull and pouring acid in the hole. But the series is so averse to really showing his crimes. It's almost like we're oblivious to their existence, which in a way is a disservice to the victims' families and not representative of his mental state. And I mean, he knew what he'd done and confessed completely to it. There's no ambiguity, but but because we're our eyes are averted. It does create a certain distance from the horrible reality of his crimes. So that's my only real issue with it. It's worth a watch, though. Um, Great music by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And I always find it fascinating when these very dark, slow and serious pieces of filmmaking break through uh, the kind of fast paced bluster of the streaming world and become a hit. So... Yeah, more like this. Pretty good. I I liked it. I thought it was a good, serious piece of work. It's almost for for me talking about Evan Peters first off. I've always found him a really um, distinctive actor because I I've been familiar with it. I think he's most. I think he was Quicksilver in uh, one of the Marvel or DC or uh, yeah, a Marvel I guess. Um, um, was it? I thought it was the other one. And it was in X Men. Oh yeah, must yeah. So it would have been Marvel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and it was okay, fine in that. But I'm mostly familiar with him through his American Horror Story because whilst the first few American Horror Stories I watched through with Faye, she and the same with Dharma, she's she'll get into these sort of dark TV shows and, and uh, go through them, and I'll I'll see it catch an episode or two, which as is the case with Dharma. Um, but he's always been a really weird screen presence. I would say, weird is the wrong word. Compelling screen presence, I would say, because he is um, in the same way. 
Barry Keoghan, that we are someone we we're both big fans of. He's he hasn't got this sort of this sort of unnerving twitchiness. It's more like he just seems uncomfortable in his own skin. He's always quite pasty and he's quite dead eyed. And when you said that it doesn't seem like acting, I, when I was watching it because of the mental extremities the show sort of goes through, I was thinking at some points watching it and watching Evan Peters. Kind of like Shia LaBeouf, you think you're so full on and you're so good. Are you all right? Is there is this like reflecting on your own psyche? Like I, I was so I completely believed it. Um, I'm watching Dumb. I haven't seen the episode you mentioned, the, the the sixth episode, which I know is really critically lauded. I only watched the first few because, as you know, it's on Savalas so or like whatever. But when I was watching the episodes, I did watch. There was a weird stillness and. Uh, uh, and it was almost a shame that it was based on a true story, uh, if because because there's so much on the shoulders of everyone involved to to sh- to show respect to the dead mm-hmm. and and I and I agree with what you said about the because I know the heinous things he did just through him him and him and Ted Bundy are you know top D, top tier serial killers or as you've referred to them in the past as true artists and I think that I think that I think watching it i was with you in that what i did see it was because if it did go into this sort of if it did show what he did in a really documentarian sort of straight like this this is the true the 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 sexually emotionally charged acts that he did the way defiled these people these innocent people it would have made it more and far more impactful and it would have given you a real instead of in, enjoying his acting it would have maybe would have bled bled through and given you a genuine distaste for the person yeah. which do, doesn't come through it's kind of it's so it's so well shot and so well captured in terms of the era that yeah. you're kind of lost in the the kind of stranger things of it all like oh yeah the 70s oh god yeah i remember the, the rock music and the you know the way everyone dresses and then and then there's no horrendous mutilation and you think well it's it's almost like a pre-watershed version of what he did. Yeah, and, um, I, and I think that's yeah, it does come dangerously close to uh, romanticizing him as a yeah, mythical figure because because of course you've the other main character in the in the series is his father played brilliantly by Richard Jenkins, unrecognizable, and um and. And the thing is, I think you are genuinely meant to feel some kind of sympathy for his father because uh, he's like he's so loyal to his son, even after all this has happened. Like he's still hugging him and saying he loves him and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and so and then combine that with the kind of I, I get why they didn't show the things he did, because, of course, a lot of the. It, it would put people off. Still... Yeah. And yeah. also it would put v- people like, I, I've, it's the first time a show has come on TV and people who I work with and I'm friends with know that I tend to watch horror films. will say, have you seen it? And I'm sorry, I've, I've seen a few episodes. I'm not familiar with it. And they're really shocked because it's probably the first time they've come across him. And yeah. I, I think that if it did go, if it did really, really delve into those depths, then those people would turn off and say, oh, I can't stomach it. So maybe it's a kind of mainstream way of saying this is, this is what this man did bring it bring it to bring it to sort of mainstream attention but i don't know like i'm I'm with you i just thought this is a very pretty show considering what is it never felt grimy yeah it was and I, I think it only really hit home that that issue when 
the the point at which he is killed himself because suddenly we are treated to a really really brutal nasty piece of violence okay i didn't see that so you see and that's the only time we've seen any really graphic violence and it's on him so i just think that as a i mean i can i think the logic must be behind it that oh we've kind of been waiting for this and given his lack of remorse etc that oh we've kind of been waiting to get our kind of release and we're glad that happened to him or something but i don't know i kind of had the opposite effect to me i just thought it's a horrible piece of violence against human being regardless of the heinous crimes they've committed themselves which we've only heard about in exposition so there's nothing to juxtapose that violence against in a way in the in the language of cinema should we say yeah but it's still a good series it's worth watching it's absolutely and and evan peters is absolutely i I kind of hope this really breaks him up because he's like he's got that barry keoghan shia labeoufian intensity to him and 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 it's great to and and in this film as well he had been to the gymnasium there's no toys about it he'd been to a gymnasium he'd done at least 10 press-ups each morning um, it, a final note on this as well, just to lighten the tone a little bit. One of our mutual friends watched this, and he said to me, he loved it. And but he said, one thing that really got on my nerves with it is they portray him as this constantly kind of slightly pissed, you know, alcohol like alcohol is really a problem in his life. And you know, he, and he but he's he's always just drinking bud, six packs of bud. So you could you could have that and go for a drive. Uh, and and it just tickled me because when I was watching it, I thought, yeah, he's always like picking up a six pack of butter, and then he's yeah. always a bit like light he's on his feet and stuff. He's, he's always battered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If he, if he went into, if it showed him going to like a what would they have over there like a quickie mart or something and saying, oh, can I have um six cans of Bud Light? And they're like, yeah, no problem. And he said, right, that'll get me to the car. Uh, can I have and then can I have two liter and a half bottles of Montezuma tequila as well, please? <laughs> and a, and a knife and a straw so I can shove it straight into my veins. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, when someone's problem with a show is basically the the the, the um the disappointment in the illustration of alcoholism in it, then you, you know you're on to a winner. So yeah, no, that's um. No, it's a good show. It, I assume it's a good show. I can't imagine it dipped in quality because Evan Peters is so reliable. Um, it did not. It was good. Uh, so I'm just looking at my my first one. Well, I've been looking for I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've got a little bit of a preamble with this. So over the last, I would say, three or four months, my brother Transval has said every time he comes up to see, he'll give me like a stack of DVDs and say, you know, I've bought these for you to talk about on Kino Kingdom. And I'm like, yeah, wicked, no problem. Um, And I put them to one side and get through one or two occasionally. And the other day I said to Faye, look, I really need to get through some of these films because he's very kindly chosen them for me to talk about on the podcast. And I I haven't got through many of them, so I'm going to watch. please. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to go through them. I go through a few, you know, and, and start working my way through them and not looking at what's on Netflix and Prime or Rakuten, the worst streaming service. And uh, so she was like, oh, okay, okay. And she was stood behind me and I was kneeling uh, and, I, and I had all these DVDs out in front of me, about, about 25 of them, right? And I was flicking through them and I said, right, so do you want to watch that? I got like sci fi, there's a couple of dramas in here, there's a few comedies, I've got some horror films, I've got some thrillers. What kind of film are you in the mood for? And she said, and it, it was a stumble and block, she said, I wouldn't mind watching a good film. And I thought, oh, hang on, whoa, whoa, now, yeah, whoa, now, Tuts back. Did I say that? That um, was not a filter option. 
And I said, well, I quite fancy watching Looking with an apostrophe Italian starring Matt LeBlanc from 1994 pre-Friends. And she said, I'll only let you watch that film with me if you get a bottle of wine. And it was banging down with rain outside. Like I was in my boxes ready for a movie and it was banging down with rain. It was so intense. It was freezing. And I generally thought, oh, I could just put a decent film on Netflix and talk about that. But I I was so determined to to dedicate it to our listeners. I said, right, I'm going to do it. And in the short three minute walk to the local co-op my expectations kind of spiked i thought right i I actually want to enjoy this film because i've got to get dressed go out in this rain i'm going to come back and have to get changed again and like i I want to watch this i want it to be good (laughs) (laughs) so this with an apostrophe so the film it mainly stars jay um acavoni as Vinny Palazzo, a retired gangster who was left the mafia after some incident that we're not party to, and he lives in the in the uh, the Bronx, and he gets Matt LeBlanc, and I think his name is who's um, uh, Tony Anthony, who comes in and lives with him, uh, and they they kind of butt heads. So uh, Vinny, the retired gangster, works in a bookshop owned by an extremely Jewish man, and. Uh, Tony, played by Matt LeBlanc, is like bringing girls around and just basically bonking all the time. They they butt heads. Um, it is the most Italian film I have ever seen. I, I it was so Italian, and, and the, what was what was bizarre about it is that it starts off tonally as this sort of almost like a sex comedy. Like it starts off with you know I'm not going to do the accent, but if you imagine everyone going ay yeah yay at the end of every sentence, it's pretty much that. Um, and, and, and so you've got this guy who's a retired mobster and, he's, and he keeps on having these visions in say actual sapia in half speed about this person he was with this guy and he was uh, out with him and, and then he ended up shooting him in a warehouse and was obviously someone he liked and Matt LeBlanc is just bringing back girls and getting the six plus out and just having these like, like comedy bonks with them. <laughs> like, you know, where they're like really just tickling and bouncing. He's like, hey, Uncle Vinny, hey, what are you doing? And, and and he's like covering his eyes and, and they're on the couch and they're not stopping. And it's like a, it's like porkies or something. And then and then basically about 25 minutes into the film, Vinny says, oh, there's something I've got to tell you. I, uh, you know, because... Matt LeBlanc's character is constantly disappointed with Vinny um, for leaving the mafia. Like, why would you, you know, you had all the money, you had all the women, why would you leave them? And he keeps on trying to say to him, oh, something happened with someone very close to me. Uh, you know, I, I killed someone I shouldn't have in an accident, in a shootout. And um, it, I just didn't want to be part of the life anymore. And Matt LeBlanc seems in, completely incapable of piecing together that it was his father who he clearly murdered in a gun sh- in a shootout in a warehouse and then instantly took him under his wing and puts up with all of his shit without questioning it and every now and again tries to get into these conversations to tell him who he killed and Matt LeBlanc's like oh, oh who is who could it possibly be the, what and he's like oh, don't worry about it and he seems incapable of thinking I shot my dad so this goes on and as the film goes on I realised it was turning into almost a, like a quite a serious drama and it doesn't work because Matt LeBlanc cannot act um in this film it I think that even the director knew he couldn't act because anytime there's a sequence where he has to show any emotion it it goes into slow motion and like um you know in like in fear.com where it's like really 
where it's like slow motion it's sort of twisted imagery and there's someone going no 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 over the top it's clearly just they thought right he is such bad acting we're gonna have to cover it up with effects and um so it goes on and it's just a totally typical incredibly italian film but there's one scene i wanted to bring up because it amused me really amused me um there's a scene where Vinny Vinny Palazzo gets called out of this bookshop he works in, and they saw someone's outside for you. It looks like they're part of the family because they're in this huge limo. And he's and he's like, I don't want part of that no more. And he goes out there and gets in the car. So if you imagine this is the early nineties, he gets into a he gets into a limo, and he gets in and he's sat next to someone, and they you know, they try to talk him to go back into the family, and someone opposite him starts talking and he looks up at them shocked as if he didn't notice they were there as if when you get in a car you don't notice who else is in the car and he was like oh i didn't didn't see you there and the camera flipped to vinnie's view there outside the frame <laughs> yeah because this is a movie and this is a bloke right he's re- he's obviously really high up in the mafia and he sat there and he has got a chopping board on his lap an oversized chopping board and he's got a load of loaves of bread two bottles of olive oil and a load of slabs of meat from a delicatessen and he's he's like do you want a sandwich you want a fucking sandwich and and Vinny's like no i've just i've just had breakfast i'm finding i'm gonna make you a fucking sandwich make your nephew a fucking sandwich too oh fair enough and um and he rips this like loaf of bread and he pumps in about a quarter of a bottle of olive oil into it and then he puts a load of like nondescript meat into it just gives it to him and then they have this really serious conversation about how he should come back to the family. He shouldn't be working at a bookstore. He's wasting his talents as a killer. And the guy's basically saying, no, I'm not. Let me go back into my bookstore, my nephew. But throughout this conversation, this sandwich is pissing everywhere because it's just got a load of olive oil in it. And as he's talking, he's glancing and like moving, because they've obviously rented the limo for the shoot. And he's like moving his feet out the way in his knees and like holding it like at an angle, but then it's going down his arm. So he's like getting the tissue as he's delivering his eyes and like wiping his own arm with it. And I thought, who, why didn't they just butter that bread or not butter it? And then, and then he says, you know, okay, I respect your decision. And he gives him another one that to take back to, to Matt LeBlanc. So then the scene cuts and we're in the bookshop in the back. And, he, and Matt LeBlanc's like, oh, so what, what happened? What do they want to talk about? And, and they're both eating these sandwiches. They talk. And he's like, well, let me tell you. But it's the olive oil is still just dripping everywhere. <laughs> and they stood up. And they're, like, talking. And he's going, well, oh, let So he's got all this bread in his mouth. And he's, like, doing that thing. If you imagine you're eating a dripping sandwich where you're, like, you're kind of your, your hips are cocked back and your feet are out to the sides and it's just dripping on the floor. And Matt LeBlanc's talking to him and, he, and he's like t- doing the same thing, like tilting it and this olive oil is dripping everywhere. And I thought, why did no one just say, cut, can we, can we, can we not like pour a lot of olive oil on some dry bread so it just drips everywhere? Cause it's just, everyone's clearly just having to deal with it. And we're going to have to get the carpets cleaned. And it was the highlight of the film for me. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I'm trying to think of another food scene in a film that, it, the, but that was one of my favourite food sequences in a film, and uh, it was the highlight. Um, well, Matt and the Blanc notice these sorts of things. You don't notice when people are struggling to eat in that because they don't include scenes where people are struggling to eat because you just want people to get on with telling the story. <laughs> so, but I, I will say, I don't know if it's because I set my mind like I'm going to enjoy this, but it was kind of bizarrely wonderful enough to to be viewable where you know it started off as this weird sex comedy and then it led to this overly serious crime drama the bit by the way where 
Vinny finally unveils to Matt LeBlanc that he shot his dad, which is something he basically should have known the second he said, I'm leaving the mafia because I've shot someone I shouldn't have. And then someone else knocked on the door and said, oh, by the way, your dad's dead in a shootout. Um, he, they argue and one of the, the Vinny goes into another room and he's literally got his foot up on a window box and he's staring and the camera's looking at him from outside and he says, Tony, I've got something to tell you. And uh, he says, I shot your dad. And Matt LeBlanc's, no, no, no. And he must do that about six times in the film. It is dreadful. And I can, Im- I said to Faye after watching it, I can imagine this is the film that when Matt LeBlanc flubbed his lines on the set of Friends, Jennifer Aniston would say, if you do that again, we're going to make you what look- we're going to all watch Looking Italian together. Because, <laughs> oh, but, and it's also Denise Richards' um, first scene in a film. Uh, that's the only other thing of note, but yeah, it's worth watching for the sandwich scene. It's also worth knowing as well. I mean, you mentioned that Matt LeBlanc can't act. Like, if you watch the first few seasons of first couple of seasons, maybe of Friends, like he can't act. <laughs> there is a thing. It's quite noticeable. There's an echo on this microphone, I think. <laughs> but it's it is an issue. That you can see there i mean he became actually a really good comic actor over time in friends but wow like those first couple of seasons and, and i guess because at that point he was basically cast as like a dumb hunk wasn't he i mean i suppose he always was uh, thick during the entire season uh, the entire run but it's definitely noticeable i mean i'm not sure he's like Lawrence olivier now but you know he has at least yeah. established something like a skill set yes. yeah, in this he was he was it's just it's just like i said it's just ourselves as a sex comedy and he's just mm. it's it's embarrassing and because he's doing the emotional heavy lifting it's just amplified is it meant to be like a comedy drama or is it no because it, it completely changes gears and and you know then it gets properly gangster if you want to watch it, by the way, you'll have to buy one of those four-on-one Hollywood DVDs that came advertised by Jeremy Beadle in the late 90s, which is what I had to watch. And even even then, it says, this side looking at Tallinn, the other side kiss daddy goodnight with Uma Thurman or whatever. And even then, it's the wrong way round. I had to take the disc out and reverse it. So that's the level I'm working at this week. So get used to that. That's amazing. Excellent. Right. Look in Italian then. So you have to with, an, with an apostrophe, that. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right, I will talk about a film which is on Shudder because I I got the free trial again. Nice. Uh, Shudder via Prime, and I watched. So obviously, I went straight into watching a film called Phantom of the Mall: Colon Eric's Revenge, um, which is not a sequel, despite the title. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it says Eric's Revenge, but it's like, okay, that's just a spoiler for the actual film itself. But um, anyway, this is, it's also on Arrow Video, It's but it's a real barrel scraper uh, on Arrow Video. It was made in 1989, so long after the arse end of the 80s slasher craze, really. Interestingly, apparently on the Arrow Blu-ray, there is a secret alternative cut of the film in the menu. If you want to but i mean you're just rearranging shit really aren't you um so it's set in a state-of-the-art mall shopping mall uh and a killer is hiding in the vents i think um 
and he's killing people for various reasons. What, well, what's this, what's this called again? Sorry, I, I typed Phant- an Eric's Re- Phantom of the Mall colon okay. Eric's Revenge. Sorry. Um, it turns out he is the ex of the uh, final girl in the film. Um, I mean, clearly it is a play on kind of Phantom of the Opera um, or indeed uh, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, a brilliant movie. Um, anyway, so so yeah, she thought he had died in a house fire, but it turns out he was merely disfigured and now he wants her back years later. And he's going to kill various people vaguely associated with her for some reason. Anyway, so there is some nostalgic pleasure in the sheer 80s-ness of the whole mall culture thing. Like, the killer watches old VHS videos and listens to music on a tape deck. It's like a very fetishized 80s, except it really is the 80s. Uh, okay. It's a bit... <clears throat> I found it less fun than, like, Chopping Mall because it's too overplotted and there are too many characters. Is, is that with the ro- chop? I was just mixing yeah, two up my head. The, that's that's with the, the robots, robots and the ladies. Yeah. What's the was... one we watched with the um, the guy killing them in a, in a mall and it's got Ted Raimi in it? Uh, Intruder. Yeah, that was good as well. That was, yeah, good. Okay. That was good. So is Probably it better than... The bunch. Yeah, okay. so Intruder, then Chopping Mall, then this. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a nice viewing <clears> for one of our listeners. It's just... <laughs> Thuddingly directed and really shoddily edited, and every performance is terrible, especially the main love triangle. And even like the physical makeup sucks. Uh, I will say there's one creepy scene where the girl dreams of having sex with her ex, and then he turns into the disfigured killer halfway through, which I thought was a pretty cool scene. And actually, it's a scene which is reminiscent, although it came before. Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the um, prequel film by, uh, uh, you know, before, well, made after Twin Peaks, but uh, set before it, David Lynch's movie, because there's a a scene in that where she's, like, having sex with someone and then suddenly they, like, they turn into her father, which is pretty disturbing. so that bit was pretty creepy. There's a quite a funny bit where Morgan Fairchild is killed by being thrown from a window and onto a spike. So that's quite amusing. The final fight features a moment where a lamp falls over and sets fire to a sewer. Have you got that? Oh, yeah. And by the way, in case you were in any way inclined to watch Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, Paulie Shaw is in it. Playing, I a, that. playing a funny stoner. When you said funny, though, did inverted commas float about your person? Literally on my notes, I have inverted commas, yes. When I um, when I watched Paulie Shaw in a series of films in the 90s when I used to work in a video store, he was in a film called Jury Duty. And the only sequence I can remember from that film, and this, I think, well, if, because it's the only moment I can remember, even as a teenager, it must have been the, the moment that kind of I thought, oh, that's kind of funny is when they ask him his opinion on the case, he's there. Because the whole point of the film is that he's there to extend jury duty as long as possible so he can get paid for doing nothing. And he says, I have to go make my decision. I'm just going to go to the toilet for a pee. And then they can hear him, and he's really sort of overemphasizing. Like, oh, oof. And, he, and it cuts to what he's doing. He's got two cups of water and a running tap, and he's just constantly pouring them into the toilet. 
And I thought, if watching someone pour a cup of water into a toilet is the highlight of this film that cost millions to make, then I am not getting my money's worth out of it. Now, Paulie Shaw, is he, and he said this, he had the film in, I think, 2007 or something called Who Killed Paulie Shaw? But he's never had a resurgence. And I don't, I know he was part of, I watched a documentary about like, um, uh, I've mentioned it on the Savalas a couple of episodes ago about the rise of black comedy in LA. Um, and that was really, really good. But even then, he's in that a couple of times talking about how his mum used to, Mitzi, Mitzi Shaw used to own the comedy club. And I, even then, he's just like, he's not funny. He's, and I just thought, I don't know what Paulie Shaw did. I don't know what, is he anyone? Am I missing uh, the point? I know he's he's no one as far as I know. I mean, I, I suppose, what's he best known for? That California man? Uh, or Bloody Encino hell. Man? I remember that being... Bloody hell. Possibly back in the day. Wasn't that with Brendan Fraser? I think it might have been, yeah. I don't think I ever saw it. Even there, I had, yeah, I had Brendan Fraser in it. I, I, even then, I had better taste. Fuck, I can remember the cover. It's like yeah. it's like a caveman turning into like someone wearing a Walkman, like riding on a skateboard. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I forgot that those films existed, but yeah, it, I just, I was thinking this when you mentioned Paulie Shaw, I thought, no, he's never, he's no one, is he? He's just, he probably got to start off in comedy clubs because his mum owned one. And then he happened to get like a, you know, an agent and did a lot of shash in the nineties. Maybe we should watch a few, maybe you should watch a few of his films. Please. Um, I'd be, I might be interested. It might be interesting to see whether he just, <laughs> did he just, stick to unfunny um unfunny comedies i'm not sure i, I mean I, I really don't know his uh, what was he he was in airheads as well i was he? with My, michael mckean and yeah, that's Brent, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm i'm thinking of coneheads that's a different movie <laughs> yeah that's with dan Aykroyd. yeah, yeah. no airheads is where they take over a radio station and demand they play this song and then the police turn oh, up oh yeah yeah i remember that oh god <clears throat> Yeah, maybe okay. maybe maybe we need to polish your episode. Who knows? But basically, Phantom of the Mall is below uh, below Chopping Mall and certainly below Intruder. Yes, correct. Okay. Well, you know, we I've talked about looking Italian with an apostrophe. You've talked about Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. I'm here to bring the quality back up by talking about Traitor's Heart, a 1999 Hollywood movies film starring and i think of everyone listening to this only you will understand the implications of this next name brian jeunesse <laughs> i watched another film starring brian jeunesse that wasn't oh cold goodness. harvest with gary daniels another 90 this is 95 99 also 99 was cold harvest with um uh, gary daniels and I've not got much to say about this film, right? Actually, I say, that's a lie. I've got a lot to say about it. I'm spoilertastic. Um, this he plays Nick Brody. He's got a bizarre voice, by the way. He's got a bizarrely like it's like raspy but high pitched. Um, it starts off showing some footage of four men running away from a helicopter, which is actually on the DVD now that I look at it as on my notes. Um, running away, and then the, the helicopter just shoots them all down. And that's the introduction. And then it cuts to him and he's like a helicopter engineer and he's got like a, a wife and a son and he's just j- just basically going about his work. And 
he, he's at his helicopter, you know, the helicopter fixer garage or whatever it is. And someone turns up on a bus sweating and runs in and says, look, I know you can't remember anything from five years ago, can you? And he goes, no, I can't actually. And this guy is obviously panicked and looking in the sky and he says, look, we were part of like a military regiment that did a lot of really bad stuff. And they wiped our minds and sent us out. And we're going to be reactivated when they need us again. You need to. And he gives them very, like very explicit details of like what he needs to do, who he needs to go to. And and says, I, we were all part of this unit. And he shows him an actual picture of him with these other people he's talking about. And, and the guy is like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Brian just like, no, it just sounds a little bollocks to me. And then a helicopter turns up and a load of men in jeeps and there's a massive firefight right that uh, where the, he barely the other guy gets shot ribbons and brian Janess barely escapes with his life and he turns up at his home and his wife says what's wrong why are you why do you look so shaky and he says and he and he says oh oh this guy turned up at the uh, garage and he was just talking a lot of bollocks and i thought mm, did he talk a lot of bollocks or did he tell you the truth and then get murdered in front of you and then the whole film acts like, oh, that guy was bonkers, wasn't he? And someone else does the same thing and gets killed in front of him. And he's still like, oh, God, these guys, why do they keep like assuming I'm someone else? And there's a there's a point where he says to his wife, I think I might like go to a doctor and look into what why I haven't got any memory from five years ago, anything before that. And she goes, no, 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 don't do that. Don't be silly. We're all happy here. It's all well and good. And then he goes to this company, a man who sits in an office in an empty room in the dark, facing a wall sized fan with the door to enter the room behind him. Classic office setup. Um, and he says, oh, was I really on a military you know, regiment? And, and the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, you were. And so there's some overacting and. Brian Janess says, no, no. Does that mean that my does that mean that my wife is my wife, my son is my son? And his wife comes in and says, No, 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 we are we are your wife and son. Uh we just knew that you did some dodgy stuff and we just prefer not to talk about it. And he hugs them both and says, oh, Thank God. Thank God that you're my wife, my son is my son, and my father is my father. And then the, his supposed father walks in and goes, da, 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 da. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm an actor. Uh, and I thought, what? And the wife's like, oh, yeah, we thought it would be more me- believable if, like, we brought in your dad. <laughs> I thought, so then it's another excuse for him to go, no, no. And I wow. thought, it's just an old bloke. Anyway, so this is going on. He turns against these, uh, through a series of really tedious action sequences, turns against this company, determined to clear his name and prove that he's been played by the government. And there's car chases there's helicopters strafing gunshots as he drives away telling his wife he loves them but he's got to clear his name how do you think this film would end up Rupert? how do you think the denouement the climax of this film how do you think it would end do you think that it would be a mansion probably it would be a 25 minute really quiet and sober court case oh my god where yeah, where the court case is going on, I thought this is obviously like just a scene in the film. It is the last twenty-five minutes of it, um, and eventually, okay then. And eventually, uh, someone comes in and says, "Oh, actually, I was on the boat where these experiments are going on, and proof." And the judge like 
you know, sort of like bangs his gavel and says, oh, you know, yeah, he's it's all a load of bollocks. He's right. They hug. He hugs his wife, freeze frame, and done. And I, people talk about twists in films quite often. I didn't see that coming. When I was watching this film, I didn't expect to just see a man in an oversized suit shaking his head while people just talked for 20 minutes. So that's not what I really want from action films, to be honest. Not really, is it? That's, that took a turn. Well, that's Brian Jeunesse in the second film I've ever seen him in, uh, Traitor's Heart. He was Holy in. Um, so just, I'm, I'm just Wikipediaing. Um, of course, there's no page with Brian Jeunesse. He's <laughs> just not famous enough. But he was in a TV series, a crime action crime drama TV series in the early '90s called Street Justice with Carl Weathers. Oh, I might have, have to dig this out. Had some good. Um, Cameos as well as like Salma Hayek, Carrie Ann Moss, Billy Blanks, Ali Ermi. So I might have to dig it out. Billy Billy Blanks. It's not like he can't act. It's like he refuses to act. It's like he refuses to even understand what acting is as a profession. It's astonishing. He's so, he's so tough. He doesn't need to act. He goes <laughs> up. He kicks someone in the chest. And off he goes. Um, that that film I watched where he turned up and to be, to pretend to be undercover, he rolled up one trouser leg and like took one arm out of his jacket. I thought, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what that's supposed to represent. <laughs> Someone who can't dress themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you've turned into you've you've gone from being someone who can put on their trousers to someone who cannot put on their trousers. <laughs> Brilliant. My mind was blown. <laughs> um, okay, so. So what did we get out of that? What was it called again? We've already forgotten. Traitor's Revenge. It, Traitor's Heart. Sorry, Traitor's Heart. It, if you're a if you're a Brian Jeunesse fan, and I if you if you're listening and you're his wife, then yeah, you, you know it's it, it is bizarre enough to to warrant a watch if you. But it's very silly and it teeters on being boring. And that's the one. That's criminal for. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I, if it's ridiculous, if it's stupid, if it's entertaining, but when it's boring, that's when I struggle. And it does teeter on that at some points. So like, but it is pretty ridiculous, I gotta say. Probably the bit when watch it, but it probably will dig out Street Justice if I can. If you can imagine after two seasons, obviously. <laughs> if, if you can imagine the situation where, if you went to the police and said, "I was just working in a garage," and imagine the the. He says there must be bullet holes there. Because if you imagine a helicopter firing rockets to blow up a bus and strafing with whatever like caliber of weaponry a military helicopter uses, it would leave a mark in the tarmac. And he says, oh, just go back and look. And they said, we've checked. We've checked, even though we drove this straight from it. And and they said, oh, there's no, there's nothing there. It's just nothing. I thought, I don't believe that. I reckon there would be a, there would be a ding somewhere, wouldn't there? Um, ballistics might have picked up a, a case, a bullet casing, <laughs> or two. So yeah. So what's your what's your next film anyway? Uh, well, I'll I'll talk about Wolfen. Um, I think we've you've. Oh we've my God! Recently, you have made my day. Please, please let me. Yeah. Well, I uh, I'm not sure what's if this is on a streaming service actually, but I've got it on Blu-ray because it was it was on Prime. It was on Prime. I'm not sure it is anymore, but um, we can check that anyway. Um, so I can't remember when we covered this. It wasn't that long ago, but basically. It just... No, no, the, you, we're talking early, early episodes of Kino oh, really? Kingdom for this. Yeah, it was uh, a very okay. long time ago. 
All right, to bring us up. You, you, you're, you're, think, you're thinking that we've talked about it recently because I continually bring it up with you and say, <laughs> yeah. I've, I, what a film. Uh, Albert Finney is a burnt out cop investigating a series of killings around a redevelopment project in New York City. The victims seem to be mauled by animals, possibly wolves. He suspects Edward James Olmos and his Native American workman crew. Uh, but he's struggling to join the dots, so he joins forces with a hot zoologist to work out what's going on. I have no idea why I found this film so entrancing as a child, because I watched it when I was really young, loads. Uh, because actually it's it's quite a grown-up werewolf movie, and not really a werewolf movie at all, because it's more about animism, really. And And it's got this whole social allegory for the genocide of Native Americans drawing a parallel with the gentrification of large parts of New York City, I suppose, at the time, because this was what, early 80s, probably 82. Uh, I think it's really atmospheric. I love, obviously, films which depict Nightmare New York, 70s and 80s New York. Uh, I think it, in terms of horror, it probably relies too heavily on first person shots of wolves scurrying around. Uh, and Albert Finney, I love him. He's probably too curmudgeonly in this to be broodingly attractive, which I think is what he's meant to be. And the woman, she literally needn't be in the film at all. But the script is quite intelligent, and I like the snappy dialogue. And I, there's a sense it, it, in it puts across across a sense that these are professionals who all know each other, and I think that's quite hard to do. Uh, it builds attention very well, even if payoff isn't always worth it. But there's one absolutely brilliant scene on top of Brooklyn Bridge uh, between a kind of confrontation between Albert Finney and Jim, Edward James Almost, which I loved. It gets quite morally dubious at the end, uh, where it seems to kind of justify the actions of the wolf and themselves. Uh, I mean, I get. I get that they'd target real estate toffs, but targeting the disenfranchised disenfranchised poor seems a bit harsh. But anyway, yeah, this so this movie it came out I guess around the same time as the howling in American Werewolf. Uh and the trailer, if you watch the trailer, it does make it look like a standard werewolf movie, but it didn't really find much of an audience at the time, I don't think because audiences know the truth and it's not really like those movies it's much more sober slower and more procedural than those films uh, and it failed at the time but i think it really holds up it's a proper cult classic in a way i'd say and james horner's music is just rehashed for aliens like a few years later it's the same music has he done that before? I think he might have done, yeah. I think there's even videos on YouTube showing like the motifs that he's just repeated through over films. It's just so lazy, isn't it? It's yeah, so lazy. Yeah. Was, yeah, there was some... liked it. And I'm glad it holds up because I used to watch it in, like excessively as a child and I have no idea why because it's really not appealing to young people at all. No, when you were talking about it, when you were, I used to watch this a lot as a kid and it's about Native American culture and their, their place in history and the gentrification of New York, all the stuff that you talk about as you're banging two fire engines together on a rug. Um, um, I 
yeah, this is this film holds a weird spot in my mind because um, eighty. I didn't realize it was eighty one. To be honest, um, I remember. I, I, as I've probably mentioned it before, I, I'm a big fan of werewolf films, and I was. I'm a big fan of werewolf films, and there was a point, and I don't know if I think this might even be mentioned on the IMDb trivia that for some reason um, people assumed that Tom Waits was in this film, and I'm a big Tom Waits fan. And I thought a werewolf film with Tom Waits in that my trousers didn't just remove, they kind of seeped into my skin and just became part of me. And I thought, oh, that's unusual. But I, I remember watching it, and Tom, <laughs> Tom Waits isn't in the film. I don't know why that's a thing. But I remember watching it and thinking, I, I don't. When the film concluded, I thought, oh yeah, I actually was watching that to look out for Tom Waits, but I was so entranced by the film that it mm. that I didn't care. And I think this holds a spot in my mind. You know, with um, this, it, it, it sits in a space where those seventies, um, what are they called? Those, those sort of political thrillers where you know, like the uh, where it's basically. A, a protagonist is walking around and he's not understanding what's happening and he's just moving from one place to the next and people are being pretty cryptic and it just feels like a puzzle that he is like almost intrinsically unable to solve mm. and, and and i really like that it's just people smoking fags walking around having odd conversations yeah and i suppose that's true actually isn't it because because he's chasing it as a kind of a set of clues he's treating it like a, as a cop but really he's He's got to open his mind to something beyond that, hasn't he, really, in order to solve the puzzle. Basically, it's yeah. about him learning to accept that there's stuff beyond just his understanding processes of yeah. Yeah, human life, uh, which is a simple idea. But it, I think it works. And I, I like Albert Finney. Uh, he has got gravitas when he speaks, yeah. but he also sounds like he's woken up drunk a bottle of red wine and then eaten a load of dark chocolate before he speaks his voice is chocolatey but yeah no i, I remember watching it and finding it extremely um like mood driven and it's a film i don't it's one of those films that if someone said oh do you know wolf and i would always say yeah yeah i do and it um, feels like a 70s movie it really does mm. Yeah, those those sort of like the conversation. You know, you know what I mean. Those what are they yeah. called? There's a there's a there's a genre of them, isn't there? Uh, what what is it? The seventy sort of not procedural. Um, well, they're they're kind of cynical cinema, really. I mean, that was that's how I think of them. Is there there's something inherently bleak about about them? They always have this kind of lost protagonist who's completely out of their depths, and that. And I mean, you can see that in stuff like Blade Runner as well, like. There's a bit of that in there. It's a bleed over from the 70s where you just got these burnt out men, usually. Yeah. Uh, just slightly broken, haven't really got. Just, all they've got is their work and they're totally out of their depths and not necessarily that good at the work they're doing. But they're honest grafters, aren't they? Uh, I meant to say this as well. Three things. The first thing, um, is that yeah? No, no, when you say the people are just complete other depth and just just honest grafters, and none more typified than in I think it's the parallax view. Is that Ned Beatty? Yeah. Or Warren Beatty, where he says he says to his news editor, oh, "I'm gonna get to the bottom of this," and it cuts, and he's just on the end of his bed in the dark, smoking fags and rubbing his temples with like no idea what to do next. And then the the, the kind of antagonists come to him, and then the whole film is just him getting in situations where he thinks, oh, "I wish I wasn't doing this." 
I wish I was somewhere else, quite frankly. Um, two other things. One, it was, it was Tom, War, I think it was Warren rather than Ned. Warren, sorry. Yeah, quite different. <laughs> Physicalities. Um, Tom Noonan is in this film with his amazingly hypnotic voice. Oh my God, I forgot to mention yeah, Tom Noonan. He's such a weird performance as well. Do you remember yeah, his performance he, in this? He's so like, uh, so naturalistic. It's such an odd performance. He's an odd character anyway, but it's, yeah, it's well, so kind of naturalistic and just like totally different to the other performance in the film. Well, what I, what I think with, with Tom Noonan, but I, I think of it as three key performances with Wolf and, and uh, Manhunter and eventually in um, House of the Devil, and obviously with, uh, what's it called, The Last Action Hero, he's got this hypnotic dead voice, and I just think he would be amazing at doing like relaxation tapes. It's such a voice that entrances you and brings you in. So you should yeah, really, if, you, if you're listening, flat, Tom... Play, flat delivery, isn't he? Which really yeah, it, yeah, absolutely works. So you should do that. And you reminded me... You know, I said earlier on, and this is uncanny that this ties in, quite frankly. I was talking about in look, looking at Alan with an apostrophe that um, there's that sandwich eating scene. And I said, it's the second most uncomfortable food scene I've seen in the film. And I couldn't remember the first one. Um, I Edward James Olmos in Two Guns is unbelievably, for some reason, the other scene I'm watching a film, watch, someone's eating food. And I think, What? So you've got the sandwich scene with the um, olive oil and looking Italian with an apostrophe. Edward Jibbs almost in two guns with Mark Wahlberg and Denzel Washington. There's a scene where, and I talked about this about a year or two ago on the podcast, he has kidnapped a woman and he sat, and I have to say this, he sat in a deck chair that's too far back and he's got his food, which is like a salad or something, chicken salad, on a table to his right, but it's too high. So he's... He's trying to deliver this this really sort of gravitas-laden mon- monologue about how much of a threat he is in a white suit with a belly and a white hat on, leaning over to his right, eating on a table that's too high for him. And uh, I just thought, why did no one say cut? Can we just, like, put the table in front of him and lift the deck chair up? But no, didn't happen. Uh, amazing. But yeah, Wolfen is one. So you've got this on, on Blu-ray. This isn't anywhere on streaming as far as you're aware. Uh, I will check now whilst you segue into your next choice. Okay. Which is Robert Darby, Ralph Moller, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Clifton Collins Jr., credit is Clifton Gonzalez Gonzalez, and Robert Swenson's last movie, The Bad Pack which is one word away from being correctly titled for what it is, which is the bad film. <laughs> this is Hollywood DVD. The DVD version I've got, by the way, if you go on Wikipedia, it shows Robert Darby, Ralph Moller, and um, uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. He, Roddy Roddy Piper isn't even on the DVD cover I've got. He's just replaced by someone else. Um, this is a film that my, my, my brother Transwell, when he gave it to me, he said, usually for the films I give you for the podcast, like Traitor's Heart and all that sort of stuff, well, that sort of shit, let's call it what it is, um, he, he said, this cost me a pound, so it's got to be ten times better than the other films, and I'm here to tell him that this that is not the case. Um, it is 1997 film, Hollywood DVD, obviously, and it has all of the premise for being like a, a good, fun action film from the 90s, um, 
it's effectively it cuts to a town in Mexico and there's a rogue uh, a sort of um, a rogue arm of mercenaries down there and they're just rinsing the town folk effectively and, and just taking the piss and you know the the mafia effectively and two of the brothers get together in the local church and say to the remaining townsfolk look we need to go up to LA and get someone who can come down and sort this out and we'll, we'll we'll chip in together get like 20 grand go up there pay them off and they can come down and just mow these people down so we can go back to our ways of life and they go up there and it's effectively robert darby assembling a crew and then having a big shootout at the end and i as the film was coming together i thought well, actually this could be good fun you know you've got ralph moller you've got you know, the knitted rowdy roddy piper vernon wells is in it you've got and sven ole thorson you've got a lot of names and i thought this is mm. this could be good fun you know you know you'd have like a guy who's good with knives a guy who's a sniper a guy who's a driver that sort of thing and he would show the little sequences of how they get involved like fast and the furious and then they go off and have a big shootout incorrect as skeletal would say what happens is they go up to the to the uh, to la and they bump into Robert Darvey at the diner, who is acting much like in Maniac Cup 2, like he is in a completely different film. It's almost like, you know, hey, Harina. It's all this kind of like silly, lighthearted um, Mexican sort of um, banter going on. It's, and it's all very sort of spongy and light. But he's just acting like it's a noir film. So he'll, they, they're in this diner waiting for someone to turn up and someone tries to rob it. And Robert Darvey effectively defends himself beats the two guys up and goes out the back door and not only to the two mexican guys think right because that bloke who was sitting there in a white t-shirt and a hat beat up two blokes who ran in with a gun he is the one he is someone we need to defend our town i'll give him 20 grand and just tell him to do it which is a leap of logic a random bloke at the bar on the phone is so impressed with the way he beats them up he just gets involved in the whole film of finances the operation Mm um uh, so it's they talk Robert Darvey into it. His name is obviously McCoo, and they give him this twenty thousand dollars, and he says, "I'm gonna have to assemble a crew and go down there." And the way he assembles a crew is in the most boring way possible. It's they they find this girl who's a bit bit sort of snarky, and she's a really good sniper, and there's that where she's in. Ralph Moller is a barefist fighter. They visit him, while he's in. Roddy Roddy Piper does a couple of donuts in a car park, he's in, and it goes on and on until they all turn up down there and there's a bit of sort of padding in the middle of the film. And then they say, right, this this renegade mercenary contingent are in this, <laughs> let's call it what it is, it's an industrial estate, isn't it? And then they go over there and it's just, no one, no one's special skills come in handy at all. They, it's just they all, they all pull up pistols, sniper included, and Roddy Roddy Piper, the driver, drives up in a van and leans against the van for the whole film until the end. So he doesn't, he doesn't need to be a driver really. He's just driven to an industrial estate, so he could be a taxi driver if you like. Um, there's a load of like really badly choreographed shootouts, and and then all of a sudden, like when Robert Darby comes face to face with the main bad guy, who's I can't even bother to look at who it is. They suddenly start talking like they've got all this history that we as viewers aren't privy to. And I thought, well, I don't care, do I? He starts talking about like uh, he throws in like the ace of spades on a table in front of him like it's supposed to mean anything to us. And he's like, I knew, I knew you'd be here. Like, really? Because he was literally having an omelette and got sucked into this. So I don't know why you thought that. And um, and, and yeah, it just they just go away. And it's a bizarre 
thing at the end of the film where the Mexican town that scraped together money, they say, we'll give you like seven grand now and seven grand after the fact. But in the midst of all this, the bad pack realize there's actually millions and millions of dollars that this guy squirreled away, this this mercenary. So they've got all got bags of cash, but then like millions of dollars each. Um, at the end of the film, when they're about to get on this like cargo helicopter that would be too small for all of them to get on, I look at you. Um, what was that film where they just all stood behind the helicopter and didn't get on it? Oh yeah, uh, what was that? Um, wasn't that Endgame, in fact? Yeah, Endgame, not that one. Yeah, that one. Yeah, so they've got this cargo that we're going to get on, and the guy comes up and says, "Thank you, Senor, for you know saving my town. Here's the other seven grand." And they make a big show. The music actually changes of them giving it back to them as a as a gesture of goodwill and saying, "No, you know, our work here is done." And, I, and they were like, "Ah, oh, si, Senor." And I thought, "No, they've got millions of dollars. They've just nicked." So don't make them out to like this is a really generous, uh, generous, you know, um, offer, a generous offer. They they they've nicked a load of money out of a safe. They should be giving you more money if if they really want to help the town. And it's bizarre. And also, that's bizarre is um on the cover of the DVD I've got, they're all wearing black, all black leather, and all in a row like the Expendables. But in the movie, they're all wearing white. I, um, at the end of the film, when they go in the helicopter, Roddy Piper is wearing the most blue jeans I've ever encountered. It's like he couldn't wait to buy them from Tesco. So, um, yeah, it's the bad pack should have been titled the bad film. It just, it's such a wasted premise, even in nineties silly action fun times. Um, this and this was purchased. For a pound from a charity shop somewhere in Wales. Okay. It's like, it's as if, when was it made? 97. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, you can rent it on Amazon if you, if you fancy it. But it is available <laughs> for money. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's odd. I think it, that the front cover is trying to... And he's trying to riff on Conair. Conair, yeah, mm. Conair, the font as well. Yeah, um, it's yeah. Uh, likewise, Wolfen is available and is actually worth renting for money on all the <laughs> usual sites. So yeah, but the bad pack, not so much. No, no, it's um. By the way, Robert Darby. This is the second or third film I've seen him in. Not you know in like typical Die Hard, where he plays basically a cameo, where he seems to be acting as if he's in a different film. I and get the feeling that he basically he isn't really capable of of acting with any kind of like humor or self awareness, perhaps, because everything I see him in, he's always acting like. He's in a much more serious, much more intense film than anyone else around him. Maniac Cop and stuff. Well, even Center of the Web. Even Center of the Web, where at one point there's a spider web in the foreground and he <laughs> walks into the center of it in the background. Um, <laughs> does he look at the camera as well? He does and goes, huh? Huh? You see that? <laughs> that film should have just been called Fuck Off. Um, <laughs> he did have an alternative title. 
But yeah, absolutely, I, I I might have to watch more Robert Darby films because he's extremely right wing as well, which really helps things. He's very intense, isn't he? So I'm wondering, yeah. is he actually ever not that way? Cause he and he's also that... like he's a lauded opera singer as well, genuinely lauded opera singer with, or crooner with like another career. And Antonio Banderas has a opera opera career. He is like a genuinely like beloved crooner, uh, Robert Darby. Okay. But but also he's um we've talked about this before. You know the way that um. Danny Glover runs where he's like slightly hunched and he's got long arms. Robert Darby's the same thing. There's a scene in it where he's standing and there's like a Mexican shootout going on, like a three-way Mexican sort of standoff. And I thought, fuck, your arms are like by your your hands are by your knees. And he wasn't even hunched that much. And I stood up myself. I paused the film and stood up and I thought, no, mine below my waist. Yeah. But his arms are really long, Robert Darby. Well, and then Rowdy Roddy Piper can't run at all. It seems. <laughs> Um, well, he's dead, but I mean, um, <laughs> even in the mid 90s, you couldn't run very well. No, uh, right, okay. Well, I'm gonna talk about another Shudder um film, which is uh called Alligator from 1980. Nice, nice. Another one actually, I watched quite often as a child, which probably makes more sense because it is a creature feature, however background to this one it sort of capitalizes on uh, this brief social panic about uh people in florida would flush baby alligators down the toilet and they the worry was that they'd grow into something monstrous in the sewer oh well, god there was there was a film with matt uh, matt um dylan in called albino alligator where they specifically mentioned this in the late 90s oh, okay. Uh, uh, I, I, you have to. You've forgotten to mention as well that um, we had a conversation on this podcast before about the films you had when you were a kid because you came from such a poor family, and it was it was like oh we just had Porky's, Porky's two, and they were on beat backs. <laughs> so yeah, you're really scrabbling around for good films, quite frankly, in the eighties. <laughs> uh, um, right. Yes. Yeah, so this alligator grows up into a monster, and it's up to a road cop played by Robert Forster, and a hot young reptile expert to go and track it down in the sewers and try to trap it before it emerges to gobble up all the Florida socialites. Uh, in a way, it's not completely different to Wolfen, actually, because it does have quite a strong social allegory aspect to it. It benefits from having a solid director in Lewis Teague, who made Cujo and Navy Seals, love it, um, with Michael Bean. And the it has a pretty smart writer in the form of John Sayles, who did Matawan and Lone Star. And it's a good movie. It's ridiculously fast moving, very efficient. It has this quite sweet central romance, actually, between Robert Forster and the lady in it. And they kind of look like there's a there's a huge age gap between them. Actually, it's only about 10 years, so it's not ridiculous. And it's quite a funny script, and it's constantly referring to Robert Forster's failing hairline. So that's quite amusing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the social allegory part is because basically while this giant alligator is gobbling up homeless people, no one takes it seriously. But, of course, it eventually finds its way to the social elite and then things are different and they try everything to stop it sort of thing it's not super sophisticated but it does give the film less ironic edge and it has a better balance 
between horror and humor than say something like Lake Placid. Um, there's too much time, I would say, in the film spent stumbling around in dark sewers, unfortunately. But, you know, when it does kick off, some pretty, pretty great special effects and quite imaginatively uh, done special effects. Because, like, what they'll do in some scenes, for example, they use, like, it'll be a real alligator, but it'll be walking through, like, a miniaturized set to make it look bigger. It looks, it's quite a cool effect. And then there's this final sequence where the, the gator just like gorges on society's elite and it's quite satisfying and it's incredibly gory and cleverly shot to conceal the budget restrictions, but but well done in the same way that something like Jaws plays to its strengths and doesn't show too much of the shark sort of thing. So it, it does it quite cleverly. So overall, it's a film that holds up. Um, and you know, I've seen a lot of creature features from that post Jaws wave, and not all of them are good. I won't lie. Uh, I'm looking at you, Grizzly. That was a particularly bad one, but uh, Alligator is a pretty good one because it actually has a bit of a brain to go with the gore. So I think this one's recommended. I haven't seen Alligator two colon the mutation but apparently it's got nothing to do with this so i'm happy just with alligator i think what well, is it is it just a film that just made years later with no link to it i don't think it was too much long of too much later but um I, I mean i think the original alligator did decent enough business it was pretty cheap it only cost like a million or something to make but it made a few times that so i can see why they did a sequel but I don't know, this is it's quite fine on its own. And I do like Robert Forster in whatever he's in. Even um, when he's in the Delta Force and he's wearing blackface. <laughs> Robert, yeah, Robert Forster. W- w- there's something about in um, Jackie Brown, the way he says his name is Max Cherry. He's got one of those voices that could basically, I'll say it, is he in the Arkans bar? Yes, exactly. Him and Albert Finney. Yeah. Physically, they may not be welcome, but they can do the Tannoy announcements or something. Yeah, yeah. You, like Albert Finney could um, be on the, like introducing like the next the compare for the next yeah. acts musical acts, but I I do believe that um, yeah I think that Robert Forster could do do the drinks like saying of the Tannoy what drinks are on offer. I think I'd be more likely to accept a kiss from Robert Forster than Albert Finney. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to put it into the, some sort of league table, yes, I would agree with that. Um, Henry Silf is in this as well. He is in this. He's a strange-looking fellow, isn't he? Yes, indeed. He has a, a, an almost perfectly square face. It's quite odd. It's And he's got hair that never looks quite real. If you look at any <laughs> photo of him, it's like it's been styled, but is it his? I'm not sure. <laughs> is it his or has it been sprayed on out of a can? <laughs> um, uh, also, Kane Hodder is uncredited as Ramon the Alligator, or Kane Hodder obviously being um, the most popular Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th films. So that's he, interesting. He is playing the alligator at some point? Yeah. Okay, he must be operating, I guess. I suppose he didn't. I don't remember the, act, the alligator having any lines as such 
Um, something that gets on my nerves. I just before I talk about my next movie is um, I was just looking at this on uh, your alligator film and it said something about what's his name roger ebert writing over the chicago sun times gave the film one out of four suggesting it would be best to flush this down the toilet to see if it also grows into something big and fearsome i hate it when people make puns based on like how the you know the name of the film or what the film's about i find that lazy rupert i would have preferred it if 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 he'd said one out of four stars is shit like i would rather yeah i mean uh... I'm normally pretty aligned with Roger Ebert, to be honest, because he always had a very down-to-earth view on films, and he watched so much twaddle that <laughs> I think that he'd recognise uh, a, a slight uptick in quality. I think one out of four is harsh. This one. What would you, what would you have given it out of four? <sighs> I, it's a tricky one because, I mean, on one level, it, it is kind of trash. But it's it's elevated trash, so it'd probably be a two out of four. Uh, it four stars is annoying anyway. It's like I want there to be a third star. I need to have it somewhere in the middle. But then is that the middle? Because that's actually you know sixty percent, isn't it? I, I guess you could do half stars, I suppose. Yeah, well, two point five out of five. I, love it. <laughs> um, I watched Albert Pian's first film, The Sword and the Sorcerer. Bloody Nora. Okay. Yeah. Because, uh, honestly, uh, by the way, knowing what we know and what everyone should know about um, about this, right? About Albert Pien? Uh, yeah, but Albert... The worst director who's ever committed something to film. Uh, oh, uh, Roger Ebert, an identical movie which doesn't care much about character. Um, I've got to say, right, so this film... Is like, I think it's 1982. Yeah, 92, Sword and Sorcery film. Because I watched Krull, which I'll talk about in a bit. And then, and then I watched this film. Um, it's it's co-written and directed by Albert Pian. It's first film and also his most successful, which tells you all you need to know, really. It's a cover that maybe is drawn and not based on real imagery. Um, it's a, about a guy called Talon who's got a three-pronged sword who uh, sees his, his mother and father, the king and queen, of the kingdom Erdan die, uh, murdered of course by none other than yes, the last episode's antagonist Richard Lynch of um, uh, Scanner Cop fame, and uh, so that was that was nice, and he then the ageless, the ageless Richard Lynch, and then uh, Talon it cuts sort of after his parents are killed and the kingdom defeated. 10, 11 years down the line, and he sort of comes back to, you know, not reclaim the throne, but comes back into the fold to take down Richard Lynch's character, this evil, evil overlord. This film, instantly, like, I've never seen a film make a misstep so quickly, right? So it start, it starts off, and it's uh, it's all very sort of setty, very stagey, which is great. Early 80s, that's fine. Um, and it shows... Someone going into Richard Lynch and a, and a, and a, a witch, a really nasty looking witch character, going into this underground tomb. Um, through a lot of the you know, the um, the blue lightning, the Highlander blue lightning effects yeah. that happened in those films all the time, bringing back this sorcerer. I can't see his name here, it begins, uh, Zusha, right? So, brings back this sorcerer, uh, played by someone you'll know actually, uh, Richard Moll. 
uh, Richard Moll, and and he's this horrible serpentine-looking, red-eyed, snaky reptilian sorcerer with this really booming voice. And I thought, oh, actually, that's really cool. That's a, like that's a cool character. And he comes back, and he the king says, you, if you do what I, you you you're under my servitude, and if you do what I tell you to do, then eventually I'll let you free. And there's like a, a show of power where he chokes this woman, this witch, to death. And he's got this real gravitas. He looks great. It's all practical. He's about seven foot tall, and he's just a scaly, brilliant monster. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, okay, this is cool. And I shit you not, right? It cuts, and and this sorcerer and Richard Lynch are walking across like a cliff or something. And he says, oh, well, that's everyone defeated then. Thanks for all your help. And he just boots him off the cliff. He just boots this reptilian sorcerer off the cliff and then goes, oh, wanker. And then, and then we're taken back to the child of the star. And I thought, hang on, that was the most interesting character. That was the coolest characters. Is that it? Um, so then we see Talon, who is the child of the king and queen who was sort of overthrown at the start. The goodies, the, the child of the goodies, and Richard Lynch is the leader of the baddies, effectively. And he just leads this mercenary brigade. And we see him just getting literally just getting battered in a pub effectively this you know medieval pub and he goes outside for a pee and there's a woman getting raped by a load of people uh and they're saying things like oh i'll show you my dagger and he fights them all off and she stands up obviously her top has been ripped open so you can see her boots and talon takes her inside and she's like oh thank you thank you and uh he says well you know how are you gonna thank me and she's like, what, what? And and he says, well, you know, my sword is ready. And he is leaning on this table. If you can imagine, he's leaning on a mahogany table with a pint in front of him in a stein. And she's all holding her clothes around her in rags. And he says, my sword is ready. And he lifts his arms up and he lifts the table up with his erection. Wow. The table like so. Isn't this meant to be the hero, though? Yeah, absolutely. So this woman's just been gang raped. And he rescues her, only to say, well, now I get to shag you, surely, because I saved you from those rapists. <laughs> Amazing. The, I, I, honestly, a lot of things happen in this film, and at no point does anyone say, hang a banger. Um, so it, it, it turns out that if, effectively he needs to go back to the castle and take out Richard Lynch's character. And it just, it's just nonsense. It's really closely filmed, cumbersome nonsense where lots of like sort of sex jokes and then people like doubling back as being double agents. And he's got at the start, it shows he's got this sword, right? This three pronged sword. And I thought that sounds impractical, but it's quite cool because two of them, he can kind of eject the blades and they come in really handy at the start when he's a kid and he's got this massive sword, but he can shoot two blades off and the third obviously stays in the sword. And it's I thought that's actually useful bespoke. Yeah, I thought, <laughs> unlike the glaive, which we'll talk about next. Um, but I thought that's actually really cool. And he uses it at the start, and and then he misuses it at the very end. And I thought the sword, that weapon design, and that character, the sorcerer, that does immediately come back at the end. It, they, it's like they said, right? These are the two most interesting aspects of this film. So let's get them out of the way, so we can just focus on bad sex jokes and people walking up and down corridors. I, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I wouldn't go that way with that film. But it finished, and I thought, 
I can imagine that's a film with about nine sequels. And it was 1982. Yeah. Albert Pian instantly said, oh, there is, you know, there's a story. There is a sequel, Tales of an Ancient Empire, which literally is mentioned in the credits at the end of the movie. That film was not released until 2010, and it starred Kevin Sorbo and Michael Parry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is and astonishing. I, I have to watch it now because it would be nice to see where the story goes. But I just thought, why would you take out the most interesting aspects of something and a focus on like the worst parts of it, the most boring parts of it? Um. Yeah, there, there were so many like double crossings and people twirling moustaches that I thought, I don't know who anyone is or what they're doing, apart from that everyone's just a bit of a knob. Um, and it's a lot of crawling through sewers and stuff like that. And the the, the, the sort of Zusha's effects are good. And Richard Lynch is like a good, um, over-the-top, operatic kind of bad guy, as he was in Scanner Cop. But... This the, the film really like lumbers along and there's not enough in it. When I, if you look at the cover of these like this, you know, the Sword and the Sorcerer and all these sort of 80s sword and sandal films, what you want to see are like witches and monsters and minotaurs and magic and not just a load of blokes making cock jokes, like wandering yeah. through tunnels. I, I don't know why. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because actually like the best, there was a bit of a, a fantasy praise in the mid to early to mid 80s where some of them were actually quite cool and imaginative like dragon slayer and you know lady hawk to an to an extent because it was quite a cool idea but also you know like dark crystal labyrinth stuff like that where they were trying out practical effects and had some imagination to them but some of these were just this was just hot trash speaking of hot trash just reading up about the sequel tales of an ancient empire Scott Weinberg of Twitch Film called it one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> sort of movie that makes you reconsider Huey Ball's status as the reigning king of movie crap. Doesn't oh, care because careful now. Come exactly, on. you stepped over a line there. Clearly, Albert Pian is on a completely different plane to Huey Ball because Albert Pian has never made a good film. That's yeah, he's apart from like Cyborg. Yeah, no. Well, I'd say Dollman is probably closest to quality when it comes to views. But as we said before, uh, as I've said before, he's made the worst film I've ever seen. Uh, Interstellar Civil War. Interstellar, which was, of course, his, I think it's his last film so far. Interstellar Civil War. I remember watching Nemesis 4 Death Angel with you, and it was just, was it was completely un- unpalatable. It was just bollocks. And I think. He kind of, it, it's not fair to say it irks me, but when people like Yui Ball is like the sort of figurehead of bad movies, mm. people really, they really did watch some bad movies before they say that. Because he has made some good stuff. And and he's made some good stuff, and he's made some bad stuff and some silly stuff, and some intriguing stuff. But it is a vision. Like, when you watch a Yui Ball film, there's, there's, there's something to enjoy, whether it's... Yeah, and they're not that badly made always <laughs> so i mean tunnel rats was clearly that was a decent movie it's a decent war movie that was oddly affecting tunnel rats <laughs> and, yeah. i mean darfur i know the joke came out of that that oh i've been darfur because the whole joke was that it looks like it's going to be like 
a cool action war movie but of course it's just a really harrowing come and see type like depiction of these terrible war crimes that occurred um but not badly made as i mean it's a well-made movie and then you've got other on the more you know fun end of the scale you've got stuff like far cry which was it's good fun yeah very few of his films it was the later even the rampage series at least it had like a narrative thread and you know stuck to its guns it was clearly a creative vision as silly as it was yes well i think definitely the first one had it, like it could be taken seriously i mean making a whole series of them seemed a bit of a silly what was that guy it was like brendan something and he yeah, was really intense really so intense like quite a regular with um Yui. brendan fletcher was his name brendan fletcher. yeah um but he was good he had that weird Barry Keown, uh, Evan Peters type intensity as well, didn't he? Where he's not typically attractive or anything, but and and he also kind of, and it is it it is something to 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 be to be adored. He didn't give a shit how he was perceived on screen, whether he was frothing, other person spitting, or if he looked stupid or like like you know he was not he did not care about being perceived in a certain light. It was all about the movie he was in yeah and i do like i do like that yeah because it makes you it makes a, you feel like he's capable of anything i mean you both it seems like he's made a, missteps but he's made good movies but he's made missteps but it always feels like he is actually pursuing some sort of a vision albert pian just seems like he's in the wrong job like <laughs> that he's he has not got talent as a film director I can imagine he's, whenever someone, anyone, if he's making any film at any point in his career, whenever anyone comes up to him and asks him a question, I assume his initial response is, um, and then he just says something. Says something because to give, the, to give the kind of, yeah, to project the kind of image of someone who's in control but actually doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. No, he is, I would say he is the worst, the worst director with the most, uh, with the most longevity in his career. Yeah, he's the one where you watch. I've never been su- pleasantly surprised by any of his films. I was just, if they somehow managed to find new ways of disappointing me, you've not got zero expectations. Anyway, so, okay. Sword and Sorcery, yeah. No, yeah, I kind of had the feeling, the way you described it, I had a feeling it might be along those lines. So, um, okay. All right, let's. Um, that's on Prime anyway, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'm going to talk about another one on Shudder, um, which is uh, The Blood on Satan's Claw, which is a nasty little British horror film from 1971. That's a, that's a great title, though. Yeah, it is good. That's enough. a great title, yeah. Um, so it's set in an English village in the 1700s and... A farmer finds this creepy old skull in a field and it transmits some kind of curse onto the local populace and it infects the young people who soon begin capturing and killing the locals whilst blaming it all on the local vicar. And basically the adults in the village have got a band together to destroy the youngsters and their leader, the leader being the this young temptress called Angel Blake. Um, and I think this fits into the British folk horror wave of the time 
along with the likes of like the Wicker Man and the Witchfinder General. Um, it seems to reflect some of the same anxiety that the Wicker Man does about the influence of sexual freedom on the nation's youth. Uh, so obviously, the, you know, you just came in the aftermath of the Summer of Love and that. And it, this is a very bleak movie. It's shot quite naturalistically in terms of like the lighting and camera work on location. Everything is dark and it feels damp. The production design is really good. The music is effectively shrill and unpleasant too. It's very screechy. And a lot of the acting is hammy. But in terms of like the kind of overall style, it's much more brutal than a lot of the hammer horror stuff. I was surprised by how brutal it was, actually. There's no, like, garish colours or obviously fake blood. And there are a couple of really horrible scenes, like this scene where this young woman is just raped and murdered. And there's a scene where this doctor slices this Satan's fur from a girl's leg to cure her. Obviously, she's awake during this operation, but it's just really grimly done. Uh, so it's it's pretty nasty effectively nasty for the most part the ending though is just a bit of a puzzle really it's like a major confrontation but it's shot and edited really oddly it's it's shot at night which doesn't help and it, the editing goes all over the place it starts using freeze frames and slow motion and it's all a bit baffling and it ends extremely suddenly so it's like it's like they didn't have <laughs> all of the footage they needed. So they kind of came up with this kind of weird expressionistic um, version of events. And I don't think the film nails the landing, unfortunately, which is a pity because it is quite good up until that point. It's kind of relentless and it has these short, snappy scenes. And there's a sense that no one is safe at all. And the sheer amount of distrust in this little village community feels really like horrible and heavy. It's very atmospheric and well-made. So it's definitely recommended in terms of like if you have an interest in British folk horror, it's the kind of movie that would have inspired something like uh, Ben Wheatley's Field in England, that sort of thing. So, and I do like these uniquely British horrors. I've yet to see one which really holds a candle to The Wicker Man in terms of storytelling, but I think this is a pretty good one. A Field in England is a film that's always been on my radar. Is that a film that you would say is is worth is definitely worth uh, yes. I, I like it's not actually much like in terms of the story and the setting. It's not actually that much like these folk horrors I'm referring to, because actually it really is just set in a field and it's very, very low budget. But it has some of the strangest like it's a really weird plot and it has some of the strangest images I've ever seen in a film. Like there's one particular scene which is impossible to describe. But I don't think there are any words in it. And it's just this amazing piece of um, like uh, ambient, dark ambient music. Um, uh, and it's someone being like led along on a leash in really slow motion. And it's just utterly bizarre. And it goes on like the shot must go on for a, a couple of minutes at least. It's so strange. But it's kind of etched into my brain. It's kind of really weirdly disturbing. Um, so it is recommended because it has got a lot of really odd images in it. And it's just totally unique. 
but yeah, anyway, the blood on Satan's claw is a pretty good entry into that particular subgenre. But but the ending loses its way somewhat. Yeah, it's weird. It's like they kind of just ran out of film and <laughs> thought, should we just cobble something together? Chuck a few freeze frames in there. Do you find that though that um. I mean, I, there was that film I watched. Uh, it was, I think, it was last Christmas actually, where we, uh, I watched that film, and they they actually ran out of footage, and they were in that ski lodge. And I think sometimes it's almost more fun to come across those than an actual. It, it, they feel like true hidden gems, where it's it's an actual like sort of uh, artifact of the time. Yes. Yeah, I I feel like uh, as my time has become more uh, controlled having a child that like before i would happily sit with a bottle of wine and like click on anything and give anything a go and i feel like i've kind of lost that ability recently so it's it's good to hear about these things but then that 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 sort of like what can i find what you know like terror train and stuff like that okay i might not stumble across those anymore but my, my transvaal giving me these dvds it's almost like saying right you have to push aside all of the prime recruiting, the worst streaming service, and a Netflix, and say, right, this is this is your palette. This is your this is your you know the the ingredients you have, and it's taking me back back down that way, which has been really nice. Yeah, back to the old days. Of, <laughs> back to the old days, and when it's just like, yeah, back to your childhood, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk. I'll, I'll talk quickly about about Krell, if that's cool with you, because I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah, I, I gotta say that again with this, I was. Um, it was one of those moments when I Faye actually picked this up for me. Bizarrely, a sealed DVD copy of Krell, and she said, "Oh, this would this be good for the podcast?" And I said, "Yes, I've seen it before, but yes, it would be good for the podcast as long as you watch it with me." And she's like, "Yeah, okay." And I thought, "Oh, do you know what? Maybe." Maybe my son might get something out of this as well, and he kind of did. Clearly terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, he watched the first bit and fell asleep, but you know that's enough. But yeah. So pushing all that aside, I said to Faye, "I'll watch this with you if that's cool." And she said, "Yeah, that's fine." So I put it on, and you've talked about Corel a couple of times on this podcast. So I'm not going to go through the, the story. Um, but Faye said it really reminded her of of that era of she was really fond of it, really bizarrely fond of it. Um. She said it reminded her of the sort of never-ending story where there was always like a really mythical tale told through like extremely practical production values. And there was obviously money there. Um, And it's obviously something that wouldn't uh, wouldn't hold up to that genre doesn't hold up to any sort of longevity because they can throw so much money. Like something has to really take off for it to be worth it. but she made a comment. I've got a few more things to say about it. But a comment she made that I thought, I don't even know what that means, but I, I have to say it on the podcast. We're watching the film, and obviously we sat there, and Ken Marshall's on screen. And she said, has he been in anything else? And I said, I think he was in Star Wars or Star Trek or something at some point. Star Trek voice yeah. I, I've never seen any Star Trek, Star Wars film or any Star Trek episodes apart from one. And I said, so he's either in Star Wars or Star Trek, I think. And there was a few seconds of silence. And she said, yeah, he's got Star Wars hair, hasn't he? Star Wars hair. <laughs> and I said, I thought, I don't know what that means. Yes. Yeah. I <laughs> 
<laughs> I can kind of see that, I suppose. But I mean, it was early eighties hair, really, wasn't it? It was. It was it's yeah. quite bouffant, isn't it? So uh, I can see uh, that. Yeah, I can. I know what she means. Deep but, Space Nine was the one he was in. But but going going back to this, uh, this you've talked of this before, but it is a hell of a cast. Is a hell of a cast, you know, with um, obviously James Horner regurgitating one of his own bloody like bloody creations, probably. No, well, actually, I I want to I need to say something about James. I think this may be James Horner's best work. I think it's a really really strong theme, and I do think the ride of the firemen's like theme is so good. It's so rousing. Uh, well, that's yeah. Works, that's actually that's actually something I wanted to talk about with the ride of the fire maze because obviously they're on the the fire maze and they they getting over there uh, and Rel the Cyclops who says oh, I found where I'm going to die I'm going to stay here that's all right they all shoot off in the fire maze and he turns up at a key point to help them and then dies ah, he hasn't got a fire maze is he so how did he travel a th- a th- eight thousand leagues and I did the math at the time <laughs> thank you I pointed on my microphone then. And it worked out that it was like they'd have to be traveling at like 360 miles an hour for four hours to cover a thousand leagues or whatever it was. And I thought he didn't just see them all shoot off in the distance. Thought, oh, I better pick up the pace actually. Yeah. Start lumbering. I better pick it. I'm going to clock this bottle, this this can of monster, and off I trot. Um, there are a few plot holes in the film, but it's so like good natured and and every it does that thing i it does what i want about 80s films like never in a story where it cuts to it cuts to them saying but now we've got to go through the swamp of bloody miserability which is a word don't look it up oh then we got to then we got to go through the forest of complete shit and you're like oh everything's an event everything's like oh something something might happen and it, it really does keep it up to the end um when it gets to the end, yes. and the glaive, which is a great the scene, by the way, where he holds the glaive and all the all the like sort of like I don't know what it is like that sort of like hardened hard lava yeah. falls off it. It's clearly too long. He's holding it and then it's falling off, and then he's like, and it's coming back to him. And I said to Faye, if he caught that wrong. If you're holding it, which is effectively a circular disc with blades coming off it, spinning like hundreds of times a second. And it does come in at the end when he's throwing it in enemies. And I thought, fair play, it throws it. It's basically like a, like a sexy boomerang, a boomerang for men, where it comes back to when he catches it. And I thought, when it comes back, he must be thinking, oh, Jesus, 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 oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. Um, but, and then he opens the, you know, the Lizette Anthony's, uh, he opens a case that she's in this weird uh, what's the word like hub she's being held captive in and the glaive cuts through that so it's worth it for that and then he gets the glaive back and I realised the beast the titular beast that not the titular beast but the beast that he's sort of after mm. you never really see it and it, but it's done really well because it's this horrible reptilian red eyed like like I hate lots of small teeth it kind of goes through me a bit yeah. And it's like this pulsating, horrible, like sort of bubbly thing. And I thought that's actually quite cool. And then he throws the glaive at it, spoiler alert, and it and it falls on its ass, and then it just gets back up. And Lizette Anthony turns around to Ken Marshall and says, It is at the center of its own fortress. It's where the power is strongest. You'll never be able to beat it at the center. 
And he says, oh, cheers. And he basically does the equivalent of running into the kitchen. And he, he sort of like runs off a few feet and turns around and then fire at it. And then the beast goes, oh, Christ, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in my living room anymore. I'm, I'm in the pantry where I'm at my weakest. And he just dies. And I thought, yeah. Um, but but it's, so it's kind of a silly ending. But I get the it's impression. It's by love, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. It's only when they can create the fire in their hands that they can blast it with a flamethrower. <laughs> There is a bit where there's a bit at the start when he's making his journey to them. Ken Marshall's making his journey. I get the feeling that this film's going to crop up a lot in this podcast. Um, by the way, there's an Atari 2600 game about this, and the first level is where he's climbing up the boulders. Uh, it's extremely expensive, but I do kind of crave it. Um, but it's easy. And, and there's a pinball machine, only about 200 of them made, so that that'll be good to have. Um, yeah, we're. we're the, she's talking to the beast and it's just this disembodied voice so she's wandering around this fortress and she's saying what do you want of me and he's i want power i want to own the universe the universe is mine i'm gonna roll it up and shove it up my ass and then she says but what about things of what about dreams what of love and he basically goes well they can fuck off can't they <laughs> Um, and, and it really tickles me. And then, of course, at the end, he, he beats him with love, uh, which is cheesy, but it's, it's the 80s, so it's fine. But the, I do think that people who discover this, who discover this film, if they haven't seen it before or they, they're returning to it, there's a real there's a real charm there. And I have to say as well, at the start, when he gets brought back from the dead and everyone he knows, family, whole kingdom dead, and Kel Marshall says, right, we've got to sort this out. And that sort of traveller says, okay, buzzing spider sequence as well. Okay, we'll go and sort this out. Oh, the first thing you've got to do, by the way, is crawl to the top, the top of the tallest mountain in the land and get the glaive. And he, he like, basically claps his hands and goes, right, off we trot then. And I was watching this like quite lengthy sequence thinking, you're wearing leather trousers that are striped like a clown and a leather shirt. And you are literally in, in like, cowboy boots, like, scaling a sheer cliff. A sheer cliff. And at the end of it, when he gets the glaive, and he's like, right, we've got to make a move on now. It gets then him and the, the, the sort of guide just having a long chat. And I thought, you were quite keen to get a move on earlier on. But now you're just thinking, like, what you did was actually quite impressive. You scaled a sheer cliff in in boots and leather trousers. Fair play. Um, I need to mention as well that, um, I mean, obviously there's some good cameos in it. Like you've got Liam Neeson, Robbie Coltrane, and Todd Carty, naturally. But, it, I mean, like, there's some genuinely good performances in there. It's such a well-cast film. That's the thing. Just feel like Alan Armstrong is so good as the um, leader of the bandits. Especially. Really like yeah, him. yeah. Um, and there's some really nice... And even Ergo the Magnificent, who's clearly meant to be an annoying, like, kind of comic relief character. He's... Genuinely funny. Genuinely yeah. funny, yeah. And, um... I always found it quite moving, the bit where it's just one line where they're about to leave on the fire maze. And basically the Cyclops says, I'm staying here because I, this is where I've got to pop my clogs. Um, and and all Ergo Magnificent just comes up to him and all he says is, uh, oh, we had no time. 
And I thought I always like that line because it kind of like it's such efficient, but it's a little bit efficient bit of screenwriting because it, it like it says so much and it's delivered so well. That's all you need. You don't need to have some big, you know, monologue or anything. It's just like, all right, there's a line. It means something. Move on. So I think and it's just a it's just a nicely put together film. Um, so. Yeah. Also, no, no, but you go, go on. So you say we're going to say, and I'll, I'll chip Well, in. I was going to say it was edited by the same guy who um, did a couple of Kubrick films as well, 2001 and The Shining, Ray Lovejoy. So, I mean, it's there's quality behind it. Uh, this is what we're going to say. Is admittedly, I'm focusing on the sort of more comedic parts because I feel like we covered it before. But if we're going to talk about the the more emotionally driven parts, the swamp scene is really full on. Oh God, like really, one, like they're, they're so they're genuinely so desperate to save that bloke. Like really, really all pull it together, and there's just a, such a sense of it, it starts off with him like I'm going to get her back, and the arc of the film is is just such that they get they the heroicism gets kind of chipped away at. Yes. And 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 by the end, they're just like just glad to survive it. And like you say with Ugo the Magnificent, he turns up and he's like you say this comic relief character, but he's he's generally funny. Yeah. And then and then when when Ral the Cyclops keeps saving him, they have these kind of little you know these moments together. And then when Ugo the Magnificent has his own moment in the sun later on, it's again extremely understated because of course he has his moment where like you know you think the kid and him are basically done for and he saves them both he does it as a as a tiger so even when he's brought in it's wordlessly done there's just this when he's brought back to his human form which probably sounds silly over a podcast but there's this kind of silent respect between them all for what he's done even though he's got these silly you know, it's it's a good film, and I know I'm like I said, I'm focusing on the on the, on the sort of silly fun negatives, but yeah, if, if we're going to go that route, it's it, it that's that's why I said it's it's so it's so well worth a watch because it is it's got real heart and real comedy, and it's it, it's a a proper adventure. You know, they, it starts off somewhere, and it really does end somewhere else. Thanks to those biomass, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably on streaming services for available for purchase um <clears throat> I'll, I'll just do one more then if we've still got time yes yes i'll do butcher baker nightmare maker um also <laughs> known as the evil protege also known as night warning none of which are good titles i can hear some typing going on there um <laughs> It's a very twisted and surprisingly smart, eatable horror movie from 1981. And it's a bit of a hidden gem, got to say. Uh, so okay. this, a three-year-old is left with his aunt when his parents go out of town. Now his parents die in a car crash. Uh, and then years later, the aunt has raised this boy and he's about to go to college. But she has built up an unhealthy attachment to him over the years and she wants... Billy all to herself so his imminent departure sends her into this spiral of madness which turns murderous they could have called it mama's boy to be honest I think that would have been a better title than any of them but there you go uh the opening of the film is weirdly like compelling Uh, and it was apparently the opening was actually shot by Jan de Bont who of course went on to direct speed 
which might explain mm. why it's such an intense, gripping kind of opening sequence. Uh, in terms of the rest of the film, uh, I mean, the dialogue for the youngsters is a little bit ropey, I'd say, but the direction and the editing in general are solid, unremarkable. There's an early role here, by the way, for Bill Paxton as a college jock. So that's Good. It's a nice little touch. The film, it, it, its real trump card is Susan Tyrrell as the deranged mother who's desperate to hold on to her adopted son. She really does go through the full gamut of emotions. And she, whenever she's on screen, she kind of elevates some pretty ropey actors around her. And her descent into madness is actually, is oddly plausible. I mean, in context, in the context of this sort of movie, like it's over the top, but it's convincing within the confines of schlocky psychological horror. I liked, I really liked the subtle electronic music. It's because the actual drama is very like over the top histrionic, but the electronic music is much more subtle than that. And it's quite a nice counterpoint. Um, there's a detective on the case uh, who is absurdly distrusting. Like he's virtually psychic and like he won't accept anyone's word as the truth is preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny to watch him bully his way to the truth, and it does keep the story driving along. Uh, it's a film where it's, for the time it was made, and the, the kind of genre is surprisingly sympathetic towards the one gay character in the film. Like you've got this homophobic detective, and you've got this twisted mother character who's lamenting the sickness of homosexuality. But Billy, the Billy the kid, so to speak, well. he actually finds a kind of surrogate father figure in this uh, older gay character. So that was interesting, I thought, for the time. It could have been a very different story, let's face it, given this was a slasher made in 1981. Um, so, yeah, anyway, this unhealthy relationship with the mother, it all ramps up into a total bloodbath at the end. And I guess overall it's kind of like an 80s slasher version of Psycho, really, which is fine by me uh i would say also that it it kind of fits nicely alongside the likes of parents and serial mum in the crazy matriarch subgenre of slasher movies so i liked it uh if you can dig it out i know it's called butcher baker nightmare maker on shudder but i think it's more commonly known as night warning Certainly, the Spanish Blu-ray that I picked up was cool. Morning, so, why? Actually, um, Mama's Boy makes more sense. But with um, with this, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, it sounds like what's that bloody prick that writes those books? And they've all got like viol- roses are red, violets are uh, blue. Uh, James Patterson. Ah, oh, that can piss off. That can. No, yeah, that really pisses me off because I saw lots of adverts for his posters for his work, and I just thought, oh, piss off. That's just. Ugh. Come on. Lazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was quite a bit of a hidden gem, actually. Okay, that's got. Is that streaming anywhere, or is it just uh, Spanish uh, Blu ray well, import? It's, it's on Shudder uh, via Prime. I'm not sure whether it's available anywhere else. I can find out, but it, I get the feeling it's probably just that, because it is a little bit obscure. Can I, can I, can I, so you're done? Yes. 
Can I quickly bang through three films just so I'm up to date? If that's cool, you're not in any rush for us. So, um, I watched the 2015 film called Mississippi Ground, um, which is a comedy drama directed by. I'm assuming you'll be more familiar with this than me. Um, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Uh, it rings a bell. Okay, uh, it stars Ryan Reynolds and, and our boy Ben Mendelsohn, Sienna Miller, and etc. And it's a gambling film and. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, Utah Smith, in fact, who is a a, a, a top-notch close-up card magician. So when it comes to stuff like this and um, shade and, and films of that ilk, then I'm very much up. I, I love a good I love a good gambling slash card film, and I'd never heard of this, and I was kind of more intrigued. And even on the cover, looking at it, this is the film where Ryan Reynolds kind of isn't Ryan Reynolds. Uh, which is really refreshing. Um, and it, it, so, I, I, again, this is the, I watched this pre our uh, pre the episode two our Halloween episode. So I'm going to keep this vague, but I, I remember the, the the sort of feelings I had about it. It's effectively that Ben Mendelsohn is just a really wayward father who is not so much an alcoholic, but so much as just a loser because he hasn't got enough money to drink himself to death. <laughs> um, and he's just this failed realtor and he's just out and about one night and he goes to this like poker competition and Ryan Reynolds is there. And whereas uh, Ben Mendelsohn's character is addicted to, to, to poker and gambling and cards, uh, and put and really pushing his luck even when he's winning like constantly pushing and pushing and pushing but there's always more ryan reynolds character is more of a womanizer and it but he's it, it's kind of clever how the film pushes him as, as extremely lucky so he kind of doesn't care about the outcome it's all about the rush of the gamble but he does well enough for himself that he can kind of travel america and go to las vegas go here go there bonk some women and always have money kicking around and effectively, Ben, Men- are you still there? Sorry. I am still there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I felt like I was talking for ages then to silence. Um, and Ben Mendelssohn, because this kind of rubs off on him, sees Brian Reynolds as this kind of good luck chum and gets mm. sort of addic- addicted to being in his in his company as well. And so what happens is this, it's, this kind of comedy drama, it's, it's pretty low key where, you know, you, you kind of see where it's going to go. But there's there's a real there's real camaraderie between them because Ben Mendelsohn when he's on a high he's so bright and like living the dream but there's always this sort of level of sort of patheticism about him where there's he he clearly is just a leech a leech of not just a, a leech on his family and a leech on himself but a leech on like even other people's luck like he mm. sucks that away as well, and Ryan Reynolds is, and and they they have their ups and downs, and but if you're a fan of gambling movies, there's a lot here, and it's nice to see Ryan Reynolds in a film where he's not just quipping, like you know he's actually having lines of dialogue and not just giving sort of um, snarky comebacks to setup lines. And it's quite refreshing. And there's a, there was a moment towards the end that I found at a Ryan Reynolds level quite quite sad, where there's this girl that he keeps going back to, and he uh, this isn't really a spoiler, but he keeps going back to, and he's like, we can do something, and she really obviously likes him, and and she has a friend who really likes Ben Mendelsohn's character, um, and and it's all working out well, 
and and then he has this big win and he calls her and says, oh, we can finally do what we've always talked about. But then at the end of the night, he's still kind of seduced into like a stupid one night stand with just some tart. And you think, but it's really good. Like he's so excited about the premise of that. He's won all this money that he can treat uh, Sienna Miller's character to doing this thing. He's literally in the moment got tears in his eyes and that, and he, it, the chase it still isn't there, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's there's always more, more, more. Whereas Ben Mendelsohn's character is so pathetic, and it really does work. And I kind of wish I talked about this closer at the time and could be more eloquent about it. But it, it's a, it's a, it's a good film that it's totally slipped me by. And I kind of am a fan of Ryan Reynolds, but I'm very much a fan of Ben Mendelsohn. And, th- and this just cropped up on, I think it was Amazon Prime. So it's 2015, Mississippi Grind, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, Ben Mendelsohn, and is definitely worth a watch if you like those kind of slow burn gambling films. That sounds intriguing. And Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, I know them from Captain Marvel. Oh. Uh, Christ, I would not expect that from the film I watched. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to skip out the one. I watched The Sting with um, uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, but it's so long ago now that I've got, I won't capture my thoughts of it. So I'll, I'll watch that again and talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. And my last film was an extremely quick one. And it doesn't matter that I can't remember it because that, that's the irony of it. My Transvaal gave me a film called Humanoids from the Deep, which is a 1980 film. Uh, I think this one might be on Prime, actually. No, it's... it's yeah, it's not a 1980 film. That's not the one I'm, I'm going on Wikipedia. I watched the 1996 remake of it. Right. Oh, my goodness. And of, of an 80, I watched a 1996 remake of a forgettable film starring Robert Carradine from the 80s. And I was watching it with Faye, and the film happened. And then Walton Goggins is in it, by the way. And it finished, and then... Just prior to this podcast, I was looking at my list of films I've seen, and Humanoids from the Deep was on there. And I said, "Oh, hey, so jog my memory. What do you remember about this?" And she said, "I don't even remember watching it." And I was showing her clips of it. She was like, "I don't remember that." And I said, "I feel the same way." Humanoids from the Deep, the 1996 remake of the 1980 Roger Corman classic, is must be the most forgettable film ever made because two people watched it and two people do not remember anything about it. I remember thinking that it was boring, extremely boring, and that the um, when the humanoids of the deep attacked, I was sort of slightly impressed by the uh, practical effects, and that's all I can say about it. I can't remember anything else. Even though Clint Howard, Clint, I was going to say Clint Howard's in it, but um, yeah. So yeah, it's been. uh, I've watched some keepers this week, and I will continue to do it. But then the thing is, you know, Traitor's Heart could have been amazing, and and looking Italian was, it was, did give me one of the funniest food scenes. Mississippi Grind was great. Um, but so before we go on to the the films of the week, oh, we should do with the films of the week, then the Arkansas, or the Arkansas, then the film of the week. What are you feeling? I think maybe films of the week, and then the Arkansas. Okay. The final word. Go on then. So what's your film of the week? Well, I mean, I've just watched some actual crackers. Mm. And I've also watched Phantom of the Eric's Revenge. Um, obviously, we've talked about Wolfen before, and I think it's going to come up enough times that doesn't need doesn't need that uh, accolade. 
I think probably I'm going to go with Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker just because it was such a surprise how much I enjoyed that. Uh, Do you know what? I thought you were going to say Blood and Satan's Claw. It's almost the Blood and Satan's Claw, but I Mm. think that with that, because it kind of just falls apart a bit at the end, I'm not sure it really amounts to much in the end. But I just think I love twisted uh, psychological horror movies but also schlocky ones. Uh, it's quite, it's just quite a niche subgenre, and I think they, there's a there's a few decent ones, like I mentioned, Parents and Serial Mum, uh, other examples. But this one's it, a good one as well, Night Warden. It, it reminded me what, yeah, whatever it's called, Butcher Bigger Network Maker. Um, it remind Night Warning. It reminded me of that film we watched, um, set in a holiday camp, where there was like two brothers and. Yeah. What was that called? That had about 40 titles as well, didn't it? What was it called? Not not Slay Away Camp, like Blood Blood something, Blood Surf. That would make sense. Oh, Sleep some... some... Camp, not Slay Away Camp, no, not, not Slay Ride. Now, what was that one with the, the two brothers and the, one of them was bonkers and the other one was not bonkers and it turned out at the end that, surprise, surprise, at the start with the blood gets an axe in the face in like a drive through Drive through cinema, and it's really full on. Oh, um, blood rage. Yeah, blood rage. Thank you. Well, yeah, that what you said about butcher bacon that make it reminds me of blood rage. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah, that was kind of like. It's not clever exactly, but it's kind of puzzly enough to keep the attention in the top of the kills. So, okay. Well, looking Italian with an apostrophe is. Trader's Heart was bad. Bad Pack was actually bad. Sword and Sorcery. Well, basically, it's going to be either Krull or Mississippi Grind. I would say Mississippi Grind is... Maybe I'm just a sucker for gambling films like Rounders and stuff like that. I, I, Mississippi Grind, I liked it as a low-key sort of drama. If, if you if you like people pulling out a deck of cards and saying, do you want to see a trick? Then by all means, watch Mississippi Grind. But I'm, just gonna, I'm going to stick with Krull because... I liked Faye saying he's got Star Wars here, and it, 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 I was watching like, and I was just thinking, yeah, this this stands up. This has got this is you know, two hours long, and it doesn't feel it, and it's got a lot going on under the bonnet. And and obviously, Robert Coltrane has sadly recently passed away as well. Yeah. So. Okay, so Arkansas then. What are we doing? We're going from Robert Forster. To... Okay. You stop talking then. Uh, well, I've cho- I've chosen one. Oh right, okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm thinking then, Robert Forster to Sienna Miller. <laughs> so the Arkansas for this month is Robert Forster to Sienna Miller. Um, that feels like they would be a. I mean, they were both alive in the same generation. Yeah. Okay. It's just going to end up being harder than we think it is. Um, (laughs) So, okay. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, good stuff. Yeah. An absolute pleasure as always. So, obviously, you you finished your horror month. Are you? um, Have you got anything specific on the next month, or is it just going to be? Well, I do intend to keep the horror going a little bit because I do need to watch 
the last of the uh, summer wine last, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the halloween trilogy and i also want to watch terrified too so there's at least a couple on the way i'm very excited about you watching terrified too i'm keen to hear about that and I didn't get a chance to talk about Taurus Trap this month, so this week's. So. Oh God, which is a film that I've seen as well. I'm yeah. Next week, please don't let that drift into the distance. Let's we'll kick off with Taurus Trap next. 1979, is it? Yeah, that's a good guess. Nice.